down cross town living like a rock star spend a lot of money on my brand new guitar baby's got a habit diamond rings and fendi sports bras riding down rodeo in my maserati sports car got no stress i've been through all that i'm like a marlboro man so i keep on back wish i could roll on back to that old town Welcome to the Objective Secure Podcast. My name's Mike. Hi, I'm Emma. This is episode 101, On the Road Again. So, uh, we're back. And yeah, we're not, sort of. we're not too... F- no, no, I think we're getting better at it again. I mean, we needed that break. Um, but uh, part of the impetus has been that uh, I have actually been attending events again. Or my An first event. event. Yeah. <laughs> with it, with a, li- a second one potentially lined up. So today we're going to talk about, as a follow-up to episode 100 and the, the Craft World release, we're going to talk about that event as the main topic today, so the five games I played in one day at the Worst Australian Ironman for 2022. Mm-hmm. Talk about my list, what I took, what I changed, and all that sort of good stuff. Mm-hmm. In the meantime, though, as Emma loves, we're going to talk news, and I love sort of surprising her with this stuff. That's it, because it's really new for me. <laughs> I have made her watch one of the, was a couple of the cinematics, so she actually knows what we're talking about. Um, before we get into all that, we'd like to thank our patrons for continuing their support. And if you want to go and check out the patrons, there's a separate podcast there, which we have actually got to update for 2022, but there's about 25 episodes there that you can go back and listen to. And um, they're going to be getting early access to some of the new videos that we'll be talking about in the outro today. Um, if you're, list- you're just putting that in there so I know don't talk about the videos till the outro? Yes. Yeah, right. Okay, I've got it. Um, this... Episode. Tick, tick, tick. This episode is also going to coincide with the re- release of the Eldari Wave 2 miniatures, so we are going to be talking about those in the opener. Today. Okay, and when is that release? Uh, Saturday, the 26th of March, officially 6pm local time. Okay, so this is going out at 5 past 6. Like well, one, one minute, minute past, past 6, because <laughs> the video goes live at 6. Right. Um, because YouTube only lets me pick one in quarter time. hour increments. Oh, okay. So it's either 6pm or 6.15 and I'll be buggered if I'm waiting 15 minutes. So, Fair <laughs> um, so let's talk about news and bits and pieces. I'm going to start, um, we're going to wind back to Kill Team Knackmond, mm-hmm. which was the latest Kill Team box set that was released. Which we didn't get. No, we didn't get a copy of this. Um, I bought it on release. Mm-hmm. Um, because Lachlan and I had already decided he wanted the Chaos half, I wanted the Elder half, so we went halves. Coincidentally, if anyone out there wants to sell their Corsair component from this kit, just let me know. Yeah, so we were having a conversation <laughs> around this, and Mike said, so we're talking about different videos and whatnot, and um, he was like, oh, I really should have waited and taken some photos and done but I was just so excited. <laughs> That is very true. The sprues didn't get photos or anything. I just had just to build them. Just opened up and just built them. Yep. So the, the 10 Corsairs are sat here. And I want to talk a little bit about that kit. Uh, and while I haven't... I didn't build the Chaos kit, obviously. Our son did. Mm-hmm. But he said the same things that I said about the Eldar kit. So the, the information's kind of relevant for both. Um, 
the kit itself was the most expensive of the kill teams that I've seen so far. It was $320 Australian retail, um, which came as a bit of a shock. I, I haven't mm. had a Games Workshop box over 280 in quite some time. Even 280 though, it's a big Blood jump. of the Phoenix was, but that was a couple of, well, three years ago now. Mm. So it did feel like, oh, hang on a minute, that's more than I expected. Um, but you do get a whole bunch of the Mechanicus terrain, more than I thought you got. Um, not that it's... It actually felt a little bit like they were clearing decks, as it were, because there's a lot... This is obviously We've all eight... Extra, it's 8th edition terrain. Yeah, got an extra 50 sprues. Check these in. One in each box. The best thing. thing about the, this release, though, is it coincided with the Kill Team Chalanth, or Chalanth, or however you said it, which was the Tau and the Sisters Novites. They've separated that, so you can now buy those buy those two kill teams separately. But you can also buy the terrain pack separately, mm. and the terrain pack from that is the terrain that I've been using to build our new streaming table. And I wasn't sure if I had enough buildings because they're from Eighth Edition and you can't buy them anymore. Turns out you can buy the box set with just the ruins. So if we do fall short, well, I'll probably go and look and buying one of those. Okay, well let's hurry up and get it built then, yep. so we can. Lachlan find and out I, Lachlan and I have we... planned it all out. We know what we're building. Yes. And as we know, we have to take a step from planning the to The first building's doing. built. The first building is built. How long has that been built for? A little while now, but that's yes, okay. So how about we move to the <laughs> we second move to the next and one. third? And, All right. Yeah. Um, the good part is this terrain. I've actually seen some people do some really cool stuff with the Nackman terrain, which is the Mechanica side of the 8th edition terrain. Yeah. And I've now got some cool ideas on how we can do some interesting terrain. Because what we basically want to do is replicate a situation where we've got all the terrain we would normally use at a tournament. Mm. So we can do tournament-style games with the right size buildings and the right size footprints and so on without it just being slabs of flat MDF, basically. Mm. So we've been building, we've been planning out how the buildings are going to form together to form the required L's to make sure the floors are in the right spots, how we're going to block windows up, all those sorts of things to make sure that the, the terrain looks cool on camera but also is functional. Mm. And that's been the balancing point of trying to figure out how to make that work. Because like... Um, Instead of doing forests, because we're going to do like a cityscape, instead of doing forests, what we've actually worked out is we're going to do little markets, um, you know, like a uh, like a Sunday farmer's market. Oh, cute. So we're going to have a base with all these little farmer market stalls and stuff on it, which will count as dense terrain, but won't provide a cover safe. So there'll be minus one to hit because it's hard to see through all those canvas walls. Uh, and it'll be difficult terrain because moving between those in an orderly fashion is hard enough, let alone in a war zone. Mm. But it won't provide any armor safe. So it'll have all the rules of a forest, but it won't be... You're not going to have a forest, a forest in the middle of a cityscape. Yeah. yeah, sure. So we've been looking to try and incorporate... Okay, so how are you going to build that? We've got the parts already. From uh, Necromunda terrain. <laughs> from the little people set that we've got in the playroom? <laughs> <laughs> no, thankfully not. Um, so we've got a few different ideas. We're going to do like a little industrial court. Like we're going to basically divide the table into four sets with a little sort of theme for each. So there'll be an industrial quarter, um, sort of a bureaucracy style corner, a habitation corner, and then the slums, if you like. So that there's a th it's all sort of a cityscape, but it's kind of representing where four parts of the city meet up. And that's all going to work in that you're still going to have... The right size the shaped buildings. And... and equal terrain on both yep. sides of it so because i mean that's one of the things that we have to make sure that we're looking at is trying to mirror it well yeah that's it so that you are actually looking at well it's the skill of the people playing and not that that side's got more dense terrain and this side's and the, the irony is like we've talked about this before that the 
well, this is a slight tangent, but there's been a whole I bunch of stuff this. going, oh, you know, we're going to do player place terrain. And yeah. I just think, are you fucking kidding me? I think, I think I may have ranted about that yeah. in the last episode. Oh, anyway. Um, Feel free, jump on my soapbox. So I'll share it with anyone. <laughs> so these buildings, they're not going to be perfectly identical. They can't be because of the way the terrain sets build. Mm. However, they are going to be, for all intents and purposes, identical. I'm actually going to speak to Amazing Forge to get bases cut exactly the right size for the building so that they mirror the MDF terrain sets that we have. Mm. Um, and if he can't do them, then I'll find someone who can. I'm sure he'll be able to, though. Yeah, the other thing um, is that we do have a jigsaw and MDF. So I want it laser cut so it's nice and neat and beveled and not torn apart because we've never had a good jigsaw that's done it smoothly. Um, yes, I can use the jigsaw. Anyway... I'm going to, oh, I've got the bases and we're going to measure it all out and have it all cut properly, uh, whether it's by Emma or someone else. I'm hoping it's somebody else, but I'm just saying, <laughs> it's not, like you don't need to go somewhere no, you don't. and get that cut. But so for people who are listening, you can just get absolutely. a jigsaw and a piece of MDF and just cut it out. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the main reason I was going to do it partly is for structural integrity of the buildings because they're plastic buildings, but also to create that consistent footprints of the building so that even if the building walls aren't quite exactly the same, the footprint will be. I don't think a millimetre here or there is going to make that much no. difference. I think it's around going, okay, well, you know, so a lot of our tables now are really consistent. Yep. Uh, and so you do have the whole table is mirrored um, and it's mirrored in, you know, multiple different ways type of thing. There are some of our tables where, you know, when we have bigger events or we're trying to do more thematic style events where you, one ruin might be, you know, nine by nine, whereas another ruin on the other side that's supposed to be mirroring it is four and a half by nine. Yeah. That's, that's a big discrepancy. Absolutely. No, these will be roughly the same measurements. It'll be um, slightly different window locations or those sorts of things, but by and large, they should be mirrored. Yeah. Anyway. Oh, I'm quite excited to see it. Mm. I'm very much looking forward to the bazaar. Well, um, you can help build that if you like. It's plastic kit, so you oh, can't glue yourself together. I bet <laughs> I can. Actually, I found E6000 glue that I um, can't glue myself together with. Just putting that out there. Well, this is plastic glue, so you literally can't glue anything with plastic. Yeah. Anyway, so the Nackman terrain has been really good because it's going to let us bulk out the, the industrial component of the, the quarter that we were looking at building. Mm-hmm. While we're talking about Kill Team Nackmund, I wanted to show you some of the studio photos. And actually, that's not true. These are community photos of guys who got the box early to paint it. Yeah. Now, we're going to talk about these, and then later on, we're going to talk about another one that they released early that we did get a copy of, which is the new Elder Avatar. Mm-hmm. We didn't get it early enough to produce a paint job of it, and we're not a painting studio anyway. Um, but they did a, the same sort of thing, where they got community studios to paint them and then send photos in. Yeah. So... Um, Which we have participated in before. We have. So I mean, Lachlan's painted for um, Dominion. Yeah. Yeah. So um, the first, the literal first photo they chose to use in this article, which is um, on the 11th of March, is a Night Lord's Cow Space Marine with the big smiling happy face. Now, that is actually the face you get. Yeah. And it's the most bizarre face. That it really is. It's this, it's this big cheesy grin. And the funny thing is, I think he's actually done a better job of it than the original version that we saw. Because the original version of it we saw didn't have the bottom teeth, so it was all upper teeth and it looked like Buzz Lightyear. 
So this is done by um, Siege Studios, and the lightning looks great. It's a cool-looking Night Lord. I don't know why they picked that head. <laughs> Just um, Lachlan used that head on his model with the chain cannon because he thought having a giant, like, hysterical grin while firing a minigun made sense. <coughs> I can kind of get behind that. It's it's the colour of the face as well. The, the pale white on the... Blue. Um, he looks blue. Well, he, he is a Night Lord, so it does make sense, but... It doesn't. It, it does if you know the Night Lords. Um, and then they go through and do some kit bashes. We also get some really cool Corsairs. Um, everyone seemed to like the bird, the Falchu, that you get. Um, ironically, it's a piece I didn't use when I built mine. Um, we did also get some really sort of crosshatch style, um, I would say almost comic style yeah. paint jobs. Uh, one from Emma Svensson, who painted the Soul Weaver from um, the Corsair Kill Team. And then we got some kit bashes with existing models. We got uh, a leopard print from Jessica Smart. I love on, that. On the um, Wayseeker from the Corsairs. Um, you know, we did get some really awesome paint jobs. I did particularly love uh, Maurice Ouellette. I mean, I hope I said their name correctly. Um, where they did a corrupted ultramarine. Um, so complete with ultramarines, signals and everything like that. As a Chaos Space Marine, which I thought was really cool. So we did see some amazing paint jobs come out. I was pretty impressed with the kit. Now, um, just scroll up a minute. Oh. So um, the last version, the, the one that she just asked. I thought to look it at would was, be odd if it had a WWF logo on. It's not WWF. Oh, so she's she's looking at Tyler Mengel's um, Crimson Slaughter Warband with the flayed skin attached to the shoulder pad, which is the a tattoo of the Imperial Eagle. Hmm. That makes more sense. But just as you were scrolling, I just caught it out of the corner of my eye. That's weird. <laughs> WWE lives in the, the 41st millennium. You never know. No, Could you never be back to WWF by the 30, 41st millennium. Well, certainly animal rights don't seem to feature too heavily in some of the... Um... Please don't go there. No, that's, just, that's, that's true. A, we'll just move on. That's it. So the Corsair, Put the lid back on that box. So the Corsair kit was the one I built. Um, the... Chaos Space Marine kit was a full 10-man squad that you would buy in a standard box set plus an additional sprue. Okay. Which is exactly what we got for the Pathfinders from the Tau. It was just the standard box with an extra sprue chucked in with the different upgrade options. Whereas like the Novites for the Sisters, the Corsairs were completely new sprues. It was three frames rather than like two and a half or something. Mm. Like it was three full, three full frames. What was really cool is you actually got the gear so that you got 10 sets of combat weapons, 10 sets of rifles, and then you also got the, the what I would call the 10 specialists, where it's entirely possible to make a unit of these where everyone is different. Cool. They even, I didn't realize this until I got the instructions, I even they even give you more than just the 10 specialists. You actually get, I think, 12 different specialists mm. because there's some that didn't make it to the 40K rules that exist for Kill Team. Oh, that's cool. So um, there's one in the Kill Team set which lets you build the Kneeling Sniper. And you can build the Kneeling Sniper or you can build the Kneeling sort of standard guy with a rifle or you can build him with a pistol and sword or you can build him as an assassin with a short and a long sword. And the short and long sword version is fantastic looking mm. but there's no rules for him mm. in 40k. Shame. But when I saw those Kneeling Legs, I thought, okay... 
I wonder how compatible this kit is across all the different... Because mm. what I basically did is built the 10 bodies and um, left the heads and the arms off. So they, I had the torsos, the legs, and the backpacks all together. And then went, okay, let's put them together however I felt. So I built the Wayseeker first, um, which as it turns out, just got a slightly more dynamic open pose. Someone shooting lightning out of their hands, basically. Yeah. She's, the, she's the caster. I say she because... I'm 99% sure the body armor is for she. Um, and I'm 90% sure that um, that body is actually for the... Now I've got to get the name right. The Soul Weaver. Which is the healer-style character in the squad. I think that's where that body comes from. Because like I said, I didn't look. Mm-hmm. And I built that and then I thought I'd better build the the Felark, who's the sergeant. Yeah. And at the time I thought... I'm going to use his sword arm for another conversion. So I can't use his sword arm, so I had to find a different arm. So I went to the assassin model that I just spoke about that wasn't kind of in kill team and used one of their swords to give myself my pirate, sort of my pirate captain, for lack of a better description. He's got a big curved sword. He's got a rifle. The rifle looks almost bent. It does a little bit. I don't know why. Mm. Um, I didn't use the... Uh, Rufio-style head. Rufio. Rufio. I went for a traditional top knot for the Eldar pirates. I especially like that just to make his fur stole just a little bit more believable, you've glued some dog hair in there as well. Have I? <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I've just pulled it out. <laughs> Very realistic, though. So when I built those two, I then went, I'm going to build that kneeling guy. Do I build him as a sniper? What do I build him as? And then I thought, okay, let's see how truly compatible this kid is. So I took the parts for the Shade Runner. Now the Shade Runner comes with two different reverse style daggers, a hood, and a micro warp jump generator. It's actually called a blink generator in the book. Mm-hmm. So it's like a warp jump generator, but smaller. And I now have this kneeling, assassiny hooded looking guy. He looks very cool. Who I love. Yeah. It's my favorite of the entire kill team. Ironically, when we talk about this in the next part of the episode. I wouldn't use him again because I used them in the tournament list and I wouldn't use him again. But as soon as I started sort of dry fitting the parts together to make sure it actually all fit, I went, I'm going to build this because I think it's going to look absolutely awesome. The only thing is like, I love the hood. It's just the, whatever's going on underneath that hood. The the armor. Because he's got a full helmet on underneath. Yeah, but you sort of, I I mean, I'm still looking grey plastic. So maybe when he's painted, it'll, it'll look a bit more. But I love the pose. I seriously think yeah, it, he's it either awesome. just disemboweled someone or he's... Just about to. Just about to, yeah. It's such a... It tells so much of a story just with the pose and the way the cape's flowing and the way the arms have ended up being positioned. And there's no cuts or conversions. That's literally me just... Popping it all fitting, together. Fitting it all, making sure the positions sit right and then making sure the head's looking the right direction. It's going to be a pain in the to paint, though. Yeah, it's not going to be fun. That, that, that really, blade, the left arm... The left arm over the cape is going to be a pain in the butt. Yeah. Well, the left arm over the cape and the cape sitting so close to the tabard, the um, tabard being behind his leg. The other thing I should mention with that particular model is it doesn't fit on the base properly. If you actually fit it so that he's got like a little slab of rock that he's half kneeling on, I had to cut that down. Mm. If you actually put that so that his entire slab of rock and his front foot are on the base, which you can do, it moves him so far forward onto the base that he feels like the whole thing's about to fall, fall over. over. 
So I ended up having to push that back as far as I could to get his head roughly centered. When you look top down at him, his head's basically in the center of the base, mm. which I kind of a, a habit I've gotten into over the years when I put models on bases to make sure that they feel like they're centered and have a proper frame with the base. And to do that with this particular model, it pushed his back foot. I made sure his back foot would still be on the base. Just. Just. It's on there by and less then, than a mil. And then trimmed all of the excess of the base away. Yeah. Because I wanted to have a nice clean. You haven't trimmed the excess of the base. You've trimmed the excess of the of rock. The, of the rock, yeah. Yeah. So he's definitely my favorite of the kill team. Yeah, it's really cool. I love that pose. And then, you know, we've gone through and we've done, we've still done the, the Soul Weaver, who's a slightly different body. I really didn't like the head for the Soul mm. Weaver with the open face and the, I don't know why, she's the only model that would have had an open face. All of the others have rebreathers or full helmets. Yeah. And then she's got this open face. And I kind of went, nah, she needs a, she needs to look like she belongs with the squad. Yeah. Um, the one thing I did really like about that is they give you a, a sheathed sword that goes on her back instead of a back vein. The main problem I had with that was actually getting it to fit a torso. Because oh. the ca- while it will fit, there's a slot that's the same yeah. as the back banners, depending on where the cape sits, oh, that's how do you get can, it can yeah. actually make it really hard to get the sword to fit. So while it is technically compatible, obviously it wouldn't work on, say, the kneeling body because the sword's too long. Could have been kind of cool to, uh, if you had one where the cape flowed out, to drill a hole so that the... To cut it, yeah. yeah. Kind the, of a bit um, blade... Type yeah, um, they do that with the Eldrad Ulthran model. It's actually built that way, so you can build it with it sheathed on his back or in his hand, and there's yeah. a gap in the cape for it. Mm. Um, the rest of the Corsairs, um, uh, you know, there's a special weapon, there's a heavy weapon, there's a few different guys. I built the squad essentially so that I can run five with rifles, which is the core four with rifles plus the squad leader, mm-hmm. and then I can either put the Psyker or the Healer or the Assassin or the special weapon and make a squad of six that'll go in a Falcon. Or I've got, essentially, I've got the kill team here that I was using at um, Iron Man. With the exception that there's a, a healer in there that obviously would just be a person. So, um, I'm really pleased with how the squad came out. There's a couple of the ones with rifles that look a little bit weird. Because clearly their legs were designed to go with different gun arms. Yeah. But the best part about it is... I've seen people use the new plastic ranger parts. I've seen head swaps, guardian arms... These ones don't have ball sockets. They have flat shoulders, which means that all the new models fit and compatible. So that's really cool. I thought you were going to say something rude. There. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what? Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm there now. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yeah, that's probably the first piece of advice I'd give you with either of these kill teams because the Cow Space Brains are all multi-part like these. Mm. Um don't be afraid to dry run and mix and match the parts. There are a couple that were a bit fiddly to get to fit just because of um, whatever pieces of armor they might have across their chest or the way their cape sits. They can make things a little bit funny. But and by and large, they just went together. And when you're dry fitting them, can you actually dry fit them or do you need to blue tack bits in while you most have a bit of a look? Most of the time, I was actually just holding it with my hands and lining it all up to make sure it sat. If I wasn't sure, then I was using blue tack like in big chunks just to kind of hold pieces in place yeah. to make sure it fit. Um, but the whole kill team came together once it was all prepped and clean, and I built them one at a time. Mm. I pulled the parts off for the one I wanted to build, looked at the bodies, tried a two or three different poses to see what they looked like, and then selected the body. Obviously, that process gets easier 
as you go. You've got less pieces to choose from. <laughs> um, which is why I built all the specialists first. Mm. Which means that when I got to the end with the rifles, they're all kind of, I'm standing here. I'm slightly striding forwards. I'm walking forwards. I'm slightly on my heel. They're all sort of very classic poses. You can hand a rifle to them and they, they look natural. But they are all different. You they are all got different. Ten of the exact same model no. with the exact same pose. And if I got this kit three times again, they would still all be different. Yeah. Because of the interchangeability between it, which is really cool. That is cool. Because we haven't seen a kit like that in a little while now, where like the Dark no. Reapers or the Howling Banshees, all the Aspect Warriors have just been. They are what they are. They're technically multi, but multi part. Yeah, but uh, there was. Oh God, I've lost track of time. Time just seems to be so weird at the moment. But there was like a big push quite recently for everything being just push fit you know where yeah. everything was coming out and it was blue plastic or red plastic or green plastic and it was a lot just, of the starter sets have been that yeah yeah and and i still i kind of think of of kill team as being because i think of it as an intro game mm. i guess i expect it to be more of that monopose well la- the last edition was yeah. it was it was a lot simpler in a lot of times or it was those colored plastics whereas these came in gray plastic with standard mm. bases and I'm really hopeful. I'm looking forward to when they release these as a standalone box because I will definitely buy more. I really love this kit. Um, I know you. I look. I know you love the kit. I feel your excitement at them and the amount of time you've been spending painting, like building them, and then um, actually putting some time into getting some models painted, which is exciting. I guess I'm just wondering because these are so multi-fit. And there are so many different poses that you can do with them. How intimidating do you think that would be? For a new player? Yeah. The good, the one thing I will say with that, for me as a long-time hobbyist, I looked at the numbers and kind of went, how do these roughly go together? And then as soon as I got all the torsos together, the only other time I looked at the instructions was to make sure I was pairing the left and right arms for the rifles to make sure they, line, <laughs> yeah. to make sure they all worked. Yeah. Whereas I just went, oh, cool, I want to make the Shade Runner. I know what parts the Shade Runner has. He has the two reverse knives. He has the blink backpack and he has the hood. Mm. I snipped those off the sprue and started playing to figure it out. If you just follow the instructions, the numbers are all there. The arms all line up so well it's not funny that the a new hobbyist could just go, cool, I'm going to paint my numbers and just build one after another following the numbers that it gives me. And by paint by numbers, he means clip and glue by, mu- yeah. by numbers. <laughs> It doesn't tell you how to paint by numbers, no, sadly. But it like it, it starts with the Felark, the squad leader, and goes, here's the front of the body, here's the leg, here's the back of the body. These are your choices of head. This one, this one, or this one. Yep. Here's his two choices of left arm, his two choices of right arm, or three choices of right arm, whatever it was. Pick what you want. And because he's not got like he's got two separate arms that don't yeah. interact, one's uh, the right arm is a rifle or two different pistols and the left arm is a sword or an open hand and you put the shield that attaches to the back on either scenario. Yeah. So you can't mess... Like, there's nothing to mess up. It's all just numbered and you clip it off the sprue and put it together. It's more fiddly, obviously, than a three-part push fit. Yeah. But this kit... I think they've been really clever with it because it just builds really easily. You can just follow the numbers and it all goes together like clockwork. Or you can do what I did and what a lot of more experienced hobbyists I've seen do is go, cool, what can I what can I combine? What can I swap? Mm. Like the spare parts on this kit. That's my next question around how much spare parts. So you get. many spare parts. I think you get thirty 
maybe not quite 30, but it's around 30 heads for 10 models. Mm. You get nearly 30 sets of arms because you get all the sword and pistol version and you get all of the rifle version and then you get all the specialists. And because there are so many specialists in the group, you do get nearly 30 pairs of arms. Hmm. Might even be slightly more than that. Um, so you end up in a situation where your sprues are actually still probably 50% full. You just haven't got any bodies. What do you do with those arms, though? I mean, I know you swap them and... I know a lot of people magnetize them. Yeah. My plan at the moment is actually to use them... I've, I went out to the dungeon and went through my Drakari parts. Mm. Because there are two different... Um, units of Corsairs, which are the Void Reaver and the Void Scarred. The Reaver are the standard troops choice and the Scarred are with all the specialists. Mm. I'm actually contemplating a kit bash that uses the legs from Drakari Carbolites. And I don't know why I've got spare legs because normally you run out of legs first, but I do. I've got about 10 pairs of spare legs. Then the torsos I want to use, which I haven't made sure they fit yet, so I'm reluctant to buy a box, but... They're from the High Elf Shadow Warrior Age of Sigmar range. And they're a very Eldar torso, but they've got a big high-collared cape neck yeah. with a big cape behind them, yeah. which is very reminiscent of what these mm. are. And assuming those torsos fit and all the bit sites are out, I've tried to just get one. Like, I was happy to spend 10 bucks on bits to see if I could yeah. make it work. I don't really want to spend $70 on a box where I only want the torsos. Um if the torso fits and the head fits and the arms fit, then obviously I would have parts then to build a very clearly a Corsair unit because it would have the capes, it would have the right weapons, it would have the Drakari armoured legs, it would still look like it belonged, yeah. but it would be slightly different. And that's the, the... I've looked around. You can get the front of the torsos for these kits, but someone's buying all the capes. I don't know why you're just buying the back because yeah. the back includes the back torso. <laughs> so you need the front. Yeah. But, um, yeah, if it weren't for the fact it was $70 to buy that box and all I wanted was the torsos, then I'd just buy the box. But it's a bit expensive for that. Um, it would work really well to cross-compatibilize it. It does cross over with the new Elder Guardian range, for example, though. So building some unique Storm Guardians or mixing and matching the Storm Guardian, Elder Guardian parts with the Corsairs. Even just arm swaps and head swaps would give you some reasonably unique-looking Guardians or reasonably unique-looking Corsairs. So, this is not part of today's topic. Why do you think that... What What's the appeal of having those reasonably unique-looking models? They're Why mine. They're yours. Yeah. No one else has got them. They're mine. Hmm. Like, okay, so I actually just did this conversion as well. Now, I'm going to put a picture of the genuine one on the screen for you first. This is a genuine model. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, so, it's all plastic parts. Yeah. When you say genuine, I guess you mean straight out of the box type of thing. Yeah. So, um, but to go with my Corsairs, I wanted a Prince Uriel. Mm-hmm. Now, Prince Uriel is a model that goes back to... It came out in metal. So, it must be 4th edition. Okay. I think yep. fourth or fifth edition because it went, it's currently in fine cast. Mm-hmm. Now I have one of these in metal mm-hmm. and I painted it for sixth edition, but I've had it since before then. Yeah. And he is the he's the admiral of the fleet of Iannan, but he actually gets exiled and becomes a Corsair. And then he comes back to save them and 
they say, hey, be the Admiral again. And he goes, yeah, cool, but my Corsairs are coming with me. So the Eldritch Raiders, which is the black and yellow tiger stripe on his banners, is his Corsair fleet. Mm-hmm. Like all of these older models, though, he's very, very small. He's not a tall model yeah. at all. And he looks really out of place because these standard Corsairs are taller than him. Grown, yeah. So I thought, you know what? I want to do a plastic version of this model. We've got the new um, Eldar Autark model, mm-hmm. um, which I got a couple of. And I went, okay, cool. How do I cross that over? Now, there's a piece of art that came out with him where he's kind of, he's still on Ian, but he's sort of standing tall. He's got his spear by his side. It's a very, he's a prince at that point. It's a very regal looking pose. It's a leadership pose. Mm-hmm. So I thought rather than doing something easy, which would be like just using the shuriken pistol arm, giving him the spear and then having him sort of stood there with very little conversion, I went, no, no, let's see if I can do something a bit more regal. So I went through my bits box and used the standard torso Mm -hmm. and then discovered that I had a spare arm from the Vizark and then rebuilt the Spear of Twilight and then green stuffed on a bionic eye for him. Oh, yeah. And I now have ended up with my own version that is very clearly Uriel. Everyone I've shown this to online has gone, I know exactly who that is. He needs a second banner. I did consider the second banner and ended up deciding it got very busy on the back because at the moment you've got those two verticals the way I mm. built him with the spear and yeah. the banner. As soon as I started mucking around with putting a second banner there, it got really weird because he's also got his top knot in the middle. Yeah, I almost think that you should um, could have gone one on either side, like almost in a V-shape type yeah. thing. But yeah, I just... Unless you cut that banner so that you've got both banners on the one pole. I don't think that'll work either, really. The other part of it is um, I'm sure I could get another one of that banner because that comes straight out of the Autark kit. It just Mm. happened that I used the one out of the second kit I had on another conversion. Yeah. Now, the fact that he's got the bionic eye, he's got the cool spear. He's a very sort of, it's a very sort of upright pose. Like I say, everyone I've shown it to has gone 100% Prince Serial. Mm-hmm. And all I'm planning on doing with his banner, for what it's worth, is painting the Corsair logo on one side and then the Eandon on the other. On the other. Yeah. Because um, I feel like that captures the feel of it as well. Yeah. But um, when you put him side by side with the real genuine version, he's absolutely huge <laughs> compared to the the old fine cast model but he looks like a corsair because he's i've used parts from the Vizark, i've used parts from the dracari um, the spear arm actually is a hybrid of about three four kits because um i use the standard um, shuriken pistol arm that the autark kit comes with mm. cut it off just past the elbow and replaced it with yeah. a gloved arm from the dracari raider set which has a big spear that she's almost like a a hook that she's using to catch people off the side of a raider, then cut the bottom of the spear off and replaced it so it's got the Eldar sort of pommel on the bottom of the spear from a singing spear mm. and then rebuilt the top of it using the original glaive from the Autark kit to give him back his Spear of Twilight. I was a bit concerned the spear was too long, but at the same time, it's it looks long because of the way he's posed. It's shorter than Jane Zar's polearm. Mm. Um, 
and when you actually put it into two hands for him, yeah, it doesn't. It actually, fit. Fi- like, I think yeah. it'd probably be a good fighting length if it was a real weapon. So, um, but like I say, it's very upright, so it's no good for line of sight. Oh, I was going to say, <laughs> how does that impact it when you're looking at line of sight? But that's one of the advantages of having the, all these Corsair bits in the bits box is that. I had an idea, and while I didn't necessarily use the pieces from them, mm. my original plan was to actually use one of their arms to do his shield. Because if you have a look at his, my, my version's right arm has the shield on his right arm. And that arm, it's a force shield generator that sits sort of mounted on from his elbow to his forearm. And the original version actually puts it on the left arm and... It's quite sort of a lengthy, long piece. So originally, my plan was to use the arm from the Corsair kit, which has a very similar part. But then the spear arm in the right-hand side would have been posed like the genuine model. Yeah. And I thought, oh, that kind of works because then it's much more recognisable. But I also thought, it's also kind of boring. And I wanted to make my own version of it. So what I'm hopeful for is that as... I build more Corsairs because I do want to run a Corsair attachment at a tournament. I just, I've got all of my old Corsairs that aren't legal anymore. So now I want to try and build a legal army. Yeah. I want to be in a position where I rock up and I put 60 Corsairs on the table and not one of them is the same as the other because I've used Guardian parts and Carbolite parts and Corsair parts and Harlequin parts and just intermingled them all to make them all look unique but also look similar. Yeah. And I think that's the biggest advantage of these new kits is that we are actually getting spare parts again and we're getting cool spare parts that you will use for other conversions. Anyway, that's enough of me fangirling over Corsairs. Yeah. I really love the kit. I really love the style. I'm going to do Corsair jet bikes because I've got spare Reva jet bikes. Remember just a second ago you said um, that's enough? I know. <laughs> I've already we- got... I already got other plans. Like I, I would, okay, it's not enough. Keep going. No, uh, <laughs> it's fine. Keep going. Get it I, all found out of fif- I found 15 Reva jet bikes on Sprue when I went looking through the parts and went, hey, if I put Corsair arms on, the, I can do Corsair Windriders. I've got the spare guns. So there's lots of that stuff happening at the moment. Mm. I think I'm done. I don't know. I can't guarantee. Okay. Moving on. Um, on the 15th of March, we also, while still sticking to the Eldari theme, um, I made a comment in the last episode that Games Workshop's Autark on the front cover of the Codex couldn't actually be legally built by the data sheet. Yes. It took them two weeks. Uh. And then they went, hey, you know what? Yeah, so um, we, we heard you guys and we're going to change that. So your $80... By you guys, he means the community. Yeah, yeah. Not talking not about our episode. I, I, like to, I like to think I have that much impact, but I doubt it. Yeah, I definitely um, so they actually said, okay, cool. We're going to fix that. It's a little bit annoying given it's an $80 book that is immediately obsolete because they had to read all the points values as well. Oh my God. For that particular entry. But you can now fully intermingle those two kits, the foot and the winged version. So you can now mix and match and actually build the one that's on the cover, which is cool. Um, it's a free download. There'll be a link in the show notes. So you can- Should be a free download. You just spent 80 bucks on a book. Exactly. Um, the worst, I suppose the best part is this actually highlighted an issue in the codex. Now, the codex for the points are all separate at the back of the book in this giant chart. When you download this data sheet, just under the picture, you get this lovely little box. Oh, nice. Where all the points values are listed. It gives you the unit size, it gives you the cost, it gives you all the options and how many points each one of them is. Why the hell? Why on earth? 
No, no, it's not a swear word. I'm fine. Um, why, for feck's sake, does this box not just appear on all the pages? Hopefully, it will. I just moving forward. It's like I can't. I cannot fathom how they done this. Did someone just have this brainstorm and go, hey, if we put the points on the page in a little box down the side where we've got all this dead space because we've put this cool art? I get you don't want to cover up the art, but... Well, it's only a small box. We've still got lots of art there. Um, yeah, look, I... It's so good. So, how do you give that feedback to them? I've already sent it. I'm sure others will, but I would suggest that the best way you can do it is either email them, like there's a um, like an FAQ yeah. email... Um, comment on their Facebook page mm. on this, but go and find this post. This post actually went up uh, on the community site on the 15th of March, so it should be on their Facebook page around then as yeah. well. Make a comment and tell them that because yeah. that page of points at the ends is, is great as a summary, but ultimately when I'm putting army lists together, I don't flick back and forth. Mm. I'm, I'm at the point with this codex now, I feel pretty confident with the points values. But at the same time, for a new player... Yeah, I was going to say, good for you, but there's a whole heap yeah. of people that are flicking backwards and forwards. And, and it's really frustrating because you go, oh, can I have that with that? I don't know. So I have to go back to the data sheet mm. to see what I can combine. Yeah. So by having it all there in one spot, you've got all the points values, you can do it. It also means, you know, when you're trying to put it together, you can go, well, actually, is that worth those extra points yeah. to just get X, Y, and Z? Or, okay, so... While that's better, this is slightly less points, but slightly less points over over this whole unit means that I can add in this somewhere exactly. else. So, yeah, I just think have tra- it's just about transparency. Have as much information available and as easy as possible. Yep, 100%. And that would have been really easy to do. Mm. So now that we've seen them do it, I hope they continue to do that. Yep. I wouldn't hold much hope for the Tyranid release because that book's already been leaked and it's Doesn't already been it. printed. Um. If it hasn't been we don't have the Tyranid book. I'm no, just saying that I'm assuming that it doesn't, based on the leaks that we've seen, that the no. leaks don't have it. So I'm not giving any information out that... No, we, we, we haven't seen anything no. about Tyranids officially, no. Anyway, so the new Autark rules are out there. There'll be a link in the show notes to go and download it if you need a copy of it. Um, you can also... Will it be out by now? I'm not sure. We've been doing it, the Eldari Codex Review video series. Mm-hmm. Um, there's at least five episodes out... By the time you hear this, there hopefully will be six and seven, but we'll see. Um, so that'll also have a link when we get to the Guardians. I think that's episode six. There'll be a link in the YouTube video that'll bring you to this page so you can download it. We're going to move to Necromunda for a moment. Okay. Because Necromunda, uh, the next expansion, Ash Wastes, is on its way. Mm-hmm. And they've just given us a teaser version of basically one of the new... Ashwaste Nomads. And I just wanted to show this and get your thoughts, basically, to mm-hmm. see what you thought of him. I think it's cool. So he um, has a bionic leg. He has some sort of weird piping and stuff that wraps around his waist, and he's got what looks to be a rebreather on. His mm. head's a bit weird. It looks like he might have a face mask of some kind on. Mm. Um, he's got some sort of scoped rifle. Um, the artwork for him, obviously, is a different pose, but it's very clearly the same yeah. model. Um, I don't. We. I mean, this is all we've seen of it so far. There is a video for it that we saw previewed a little while back, which was kind of the cinematic teaser, which mm. we talked about in the next expansion. Um, I that, can, that model is very Necromunda to me. It is, it and it, it's just... it's almost Mad Max 
because obviously it's that ash wastes. Yeah. Like it's yeah. outdoors of Necromunda. It's mm. out in the the dunes and out in the sort of the wastelands. Yeah. So I, f- I think they've captured that pretty well. Yeah. There's little sort of bones and bits and pieces and nothing really matches on him. He's kind of put together. So it'd be interesting to see what the rest of the range looks like. He's kind of cobbled together rather than put together. Yes. That's a good way of putting it. Mm. Definitely he, not put together. <laughs> but, he, but he is a cool-looking model. He's a cool-looking model. I can see Chaos players picking them up yeah. as cultists and those sorts of things. Um, but I'm sure that once we see more about it, we'll be able to talk more about it in terms of Necromunda. We're going to move on now before we finish up to the new Eldar release, which okay. we can talk about today. You need to be very concise because you've got to go pick no, your well, no, up it's before fine. we record the main topic, okay? So the new Shining Spears, the new Avatar of Cain, as well as the Autark, the Rangers and the Shroud Runners are all available today. Mm-hmm. Yes, it will be today. It will be today. This is going out <laughs> the day that yep. they're available, yep. Um, we've already seen the Shroud Runners and the Rangers and the Autark from the Eldritch Omens box. Mm-hmm. Um, we were fortunate enough for Games Workshop to send us the new Elder Avatar and... The Shining Spears. And as with the other ones, while we have been raffling off some of the products that we get from Games Workshop with our patrons, these will not be no, going No, the Avatar's the not going anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> these models have already been built. Um, I'm going to start quickly talking about the Shining Spear models. Um, the unboxing video that's on the YouTube channel will actually give you size comparisons because I fortunately have every Eldar jet bike known to man. Yeah, fortunate. Um, so there's size comparison shots between the old jet bikes, the current Windrunners, the Shroud Runners, the Reavers, the Harlequin jet bikes. There's comparisons for all of them so you can mm-hmm. see how big they are. They are slightly longer nose than a standard jet bike. Um, the body is slightly shorter than a Shroud Runner, but ultimately it's the same length because its nose is longer. Um, they do have two sets of wings, which I don't think we've seen a lot of in terms of artwork, um, or even just the, the photos, to be fair. You do get, um, uh, you do get, I think it's eight or nine different heads for the three models, because you get the, uh, three standard guys, you get the three Anari heads, and then you get the Exarch, and then the Exarch Anari head, but there's also two Exarch helmets, so there's nine heads in total. Um... One of my favorite parts about this kit, though, is when you build the standard jet bikes. So the one I've given Emma is actually the Exarch with a Paragon blade. Mm. When you build the standard jet bikes, the um, canopy is slightly different that it actually has a lance holder. Yeah, very that cool. That the lance actually fits in. Yeah. With one of the arms, it fits perfectly. Um, as if he's jousting, mm. which is obviously what they're intended to replicate. Um, they also have stuck to the older style of shining spears and that they don't have two handlebars one hand the left hand has like a matrix that they kind of wrap their hand into but there is no right hand control for the bike because that's their fighting arm yeah which i think is a nice little touch it like i said harkens back unless you're left-handed no eldar amy dexterous it doesn't matter (laughs) um right so uh (laughs) You heard it here. I'm, I'm yeah. right and I'm sticking with it. Fair enough. Just keep going. Keep going. The other good part, though, is you do, again, get spares because of the way it all sets up. Mm. So I needed an Autark on jet bike and the old version rides the old jet bike. Yeah. And it's a fine cast kit now and it's a bit dated. So I went out to the dungeon <laughs> and got a spare Windrider jet bike. And I cobbled it together with spare parts from the Shining Spears and made my own version. Hmm. 
So this uses a standard Windrider jet bike. It's a slightly different hull. Um, the front of it that's meant to come off, it's fine. Okay. <laughs> she just dropped a piece. <laughs> the front canopy. So because of because I built an Exarch, I did have a spare laser lance. So the Autark got the spare laser lance. The only downside is the um, body of the Windriders is still a ball socket for the shoulder rather than a flat surface. Yeah. So I did have to kind of fudge it a little bit. There's a tiny bit of green stuff in the join along with the plastic glue to get it to sit properly. Um, you'll never see it because yeah, of the way I built it. You can't see that. Um, the head is the unhelmeted Exarch head. So if you have a look, he doesn't actually have a mask. He's sort of got a mask from the nose down. His top half of his head's exposed. Mm. Um, I Then... The hardest part of this conversion, I actually used a spare shoulder pad from the kit. I was just about to ask if that was it, yeah. Um, I cut off the old shoulder pad and the new one actually, when you build, covers their left shoulder like a jousting suit of armour, yeah. but then wraps down onto their left breast to put the soul stone there. So I've actually cut the old shoulder pad away and slightly shaved down the torso so that that fits snugly. So he actually does have that shining spear feel to him. And the last part was actually adding the fifth wing to the back of the jet bike. So the standard Windrunner has the two lower wings and then it has the two little antenna on the left and right hand sides of the bike. Mm. The Shining Spear bike has the two wings at the bottom, has four wings at the bottom and then it has the tail wing yeah. on the back. I ended up with this bike cutting out, there's sort of like a, a just a dome that sits between the two antenna on the back of the bike. I actually got the two halves of the bike cut that out completely and then got the spare piece from the Exarch build which is um, the tail without the banner and actually grafted that in there so he does actually have a completely unique bike so he's not a shining spear because he doesn't have the quad wings but he is still unique in his own way mm. and the goal for that is it means that I can paint him up as an Autark rather than Aspect Colours and he's going to be very discernible as to what he is rather than being lost in a sea of other jet yeah. bikes. So I'm really pleased with how he came out. I haven't been able to take photos and share him because he uses parts that I've, I can't share yet. Um, but you can still take photos and have them ready so you can they, share them. Yeah, look, that'll happen on Saturday. Um, the main guy of the show, though, is the Avatar of Kane. Yes. Not as big as yeah. I was expecting. Based on the photos, so when we were doing the episode... You shouldn't have said that. Okay. Oh, no, take it back. He's no, no, huge. no. He's absolutely huge. <laughs> yeah, that's not helping your cause when Ben Hall gets a copy of your clips. <laughs> um, so, the Avatar of Kane, there are comparison shots in the unboxing video. Yeah. He is the same size as the Forge World model. So, in the episode, the last podcast episode we did, we were basing it off the photos that we saw on the um, yeah. Warhammer website. And I think we both thought that he was going to be a lot bigger than he is. Yeah. So the base is an 80 mil base. So it is a slightly different scale. In terms of when I was building him, I got to the point where I'd built him to the shoulders and he was the same height as the Forge of One to the shoulders. Mm. And I went, oh, he might end up slightly bigger than just because of the way yeah. the top knot and everything ends up, yeah. but he doesn't. He's not in as vertical a pose as the Forge World one, because the Forge World one walking actually has quite straight legs, whereas there's one bent leg here and yeah, he's, he's got a much still. wider stance. But I don't think... I think putting the Forge World one on an 80 mil base will be 100% fine. Yeah. I don't think there's any issues with that because the de ir irony is I built mine with this, the classic head and the spear. Mm. The spear tip 
is the highest part of this model, and it's the same height as the sword arms, sword tip from Forge World. Hmm. So I don't actually see the problem with using the Forge World one on an 80 mil base and just calling it a day if that's what you choose to do. The best part is though this model has actually come through reasonably priced for a change given what it is. Mm. Um, it's only one sprue but it's a big sprue and when I got the pricing for it I kind of went oh that's actually not terrible because I was fully expecting this to be a 200 plus dollar kit here in Australia. He actually comes through at 165 bucks. Yeah. Which, like I say, for Games Workshop, for this sort of character, I was expecting a $200, $210 price tag. And again, I know I know it's comparing apples and oranges, but I can't remember what the last model was that Lachlan just ordered. What did he order? The Kaitan Demon Engine. Yep. How much was that? 237 So, you know, he ordered it and it's this pretty it tiny It is huge. Bo- it is, well, it's a pretty small box though, isn't it? When you just have... Well, How many sprues there? Well, it was twice the thickness of the Avatar's box, but it was the same size. Yeah. And I'm like, oh my, you know, he's earning his own money, he's spending his own money, he can spend his money on what he wants. But you still kind of go, oh my God, it's $230 and all he's got is that little box. And then thinking about it going, okay, so if he bought a Lego, how much time would he spend building it? And, you know, the amount of time that goes into building and painting and... And the conversions and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. 165 did you yeah. say? You know, $165. It seems like a lot for one model. But actually, I guess it depends what you're comparing it to yeah. and where you place the value. For those of you who are interested, and I do talk about this in the unboxing video, um, you do get the three heads, the mm. classic. I was, see, I was going to go there, but I was like, no, don't, because it's in the unboxing video and we want people to watch that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was talking about magnetizing it i know what you were talking about that's why yeah. i was not talking about it because you're going to talk about it in there go and go and watch the video but you can't um or you could but it's just not worth the effort no no he's talking about magnetizing not no yeah yeah, yeah it's, def- <laughs> it's definitely worth the effort to watch the video even even swapping the weapons over and I, again i talk about it in the video it's um it's going to be awkward for those who want to which is why i just as soon as i look through the instructions i just went i'm just going to build it the way i want it and, and I was really tempted to build it with the Ares Roman style helmet until you made the comment, is it really the avatar of Cain if it doesn't have the horns though? Because it's been like that since like 1989. And I thought, oh, I hate you. You're welcome. And then I built it that way. So-, you, really. um, <laughs> so just to add some extra words around what I was trying not to say because we he does put it in the video. So um, videos going out. It goes, well, the time you're hearing this, it's already out. So, okay, awesome. So the video's out about this model. And when we spoke in the last episode, we were talking about whether or not, because it does come with three heads, could you magnetize the head so you had three different options? But the answer is no, because the head and the necks come to, they've got different heads, and like different necks, and the necks slot into the torsos. Yeah, the necks integrate and you can't. Yeah, so rip. we had a big conversation around well, what happens if you slice off the neck and you then try and, you know, green stuff it. So, that, But it was just... It's too much work. Yeah, it's a lot of work. and For no for what? no benefit. Yeah. The only downside to this model that I can see, and it's purely from an organizer's perspective, I know there will be people out there who build this model with the unhelmeted head and the axe. Now, that is going to reduce the height of this model by an inch. And I can see people building it that way and they'll go, oh, we think it's the coolest way to build it. But the reality is it's going to lower its height 
which obviously in turn becomes an advantage for modelling. Yeah, but we've talked about this before. This is not a conversion. This is straight out of the box build. Yeah. You can't you can't penalise someone for for choosing to build it that way. But I can is, see people building it that way for that reason. But we've talked about the fact that while it's a you modelling for advantage, there's always disadvantage that goes with that as well. So you know, while yes, they can't see you because you fit behind whatever wall yeah. or whatever it is, you can't see them either because you're hiding behind a wall. So every advantage, you know has an equal and opposite disadvantage. In this particular model's <laughs> case, though, because it only has a 12-inch ranged attack, it not being able to be seen until it comes out to punch you in the face is, is an advantage. Yeah. And to, for the record, I did get to put it on the table against the Kaitan Demon engine because Lachlan said to me, let's, let's play a game. I said, yep, cool, we'll play a game. We've been trying to work through a, a way of him using his demon engines for an army. And he said, oh, I want to come and fight your avatar with the Kaitan. I said, okay, cool, we can do that. And he advanced the Kaitan right up into the middle of the board. The Avatar walked around the corner, charged the Kaitan. The Kaitan has 26 wounds, 28 wounds. The Avatar did 30-something wounds in the first round of combat and obliterated it. It then survived the rest of 1,500 points worth of shooting on two wounds, then got charged, survived the first round of combat, killed all three models in base-to-base contact with it and walked out the other side for my next turn. And Lachlan went... Oh, that sucks. <laughs> I went, yeah. oh, but your Kaitan's freshly painted. First time on the table, it dies the first instant you put it on the table. When the avatar is painted, he's going to have the same thing happen. But at the is moment, this why you never paint your models. <laughs> <laughs> um, he's actually been undercoated in prep for painting, and I've been waiting, hoping that we would get some tutorials on how to do the lava mm. in a modern way, because I don't really want to ruin this model by doing it fast and like playing it fast and loose with how I was going to paint it. Um, but at the same time, I want to get it painted because I want to use it. Okay, we've got three minutes before we need to head up the hill to go for children. <laughs> so have you got any final thoughts so, on this? Look, with the Avatar, when you build him, there's a couple of things I will note. Um, with the Shining Spears, if you've built not a jetpack before, you'll be fine. They build really straightforwardly. The Avatar, um, all the little, ins- all the flame pieces are integrated. You get no choice. Mm-hmm. Trimming them off would mostly be possible save for the one that's on his back because the back flame has a bunch of the Eldar runes that are hanging off of his armour integrated into the fire. So cutting that flame off is going to be a real pain in the butt because you're going to lose... There's no detail underneath it. It's obviously designed to be there. Um, So I guess it's a choice, isn't it? Now, the other interesting part about this is all the little runes on the straps are individual pieces. And that was really fiddly, particularly the ones that run in between the sheets of fire around Mm. his side. So you will need a pair of tweezers or someone else's small hands to hold things in place for you. Um, I found it quite, not challenging, but it was fiddly to get it all in the right spot. The other piece is the chest armor. He's got like a ribbed wraithbone piece that sits on the top of his chest. There's two straps that attach to it. Mm -hmm. They didn't fit. I actually had to bend those and twist them slightly to make them connect. Mm. Um, whether that's because I didn't have them in exactly the right spot, I don't know, but there was only one way they kind of fitted. Um, so I would certainly suggest taking your time with all those straps, making sure that you know which piece goes where and understanding how it sits because the rest of the body is really easy. The rest yeah. of it's super straightforward. It goes together without a problem. But those little strappy bits, 
are really irritating because they only go in one way and you have to build them at the time they tell you to build them. Otherwise, you can't get them in mm. because of the way the shoulder pads sit and because of the way the other pieces go in. I think that's probably a good lesson is to actually follow the instructions and don't think that you know better. With this particular model, <laughs> I looked, I read through the instructions once, went back to that part and went, what happens if I do that at the end? Skipped that bit, looked at the next bits and went, oh, hell no. I'm going to do that when it tells me to do that. Mm. Um, don't get excited and put the arms on first because then you've got a, the spear, sword, axe arm gets in the way of some of the straps. Yeah. The shoulder pads have to go on at the very end once all the straps are in place to make sure that the wraith bone piece goes in the right spot. Um, in theory, you could probably leave off a lot of the straps if you didn't want them on the model. Yeah. But... I wonder if you left them off, you'd have quite a plain model. Yeah, I really like but all I the... Guess, you know, if you'd have a plain model, it depends how you paint it. That is true. But it is a very, very cool model. Yeah, it is. Um, if you do have an old Forge World one, whether it's got a spear or a sword, if you put it on an mill base, you'll be fine. Mm-hmm. Um, the... I'm starting to think more and more that actually instead of gluing models to bases, they should be magnetised to their base. So when Games Workshop decide to change the bases, you can just pull them off and no, magnetize look, them to the next base. I mean, the if we ignore the Forgeboard avatar for a second, yeah. the last avatar model we got was 1994, and he came on a 40 mil square base. Yep. Now, he did get updated a couple of times over the years where he at one point came on a 60 mil round, and then he went back to a 40 mil round, mm. which is what the old one left us with on a 40 mil round. Um. The model's 30 years old. If we don't get another avatar for 30 years, I think I can get away with gluing this one to his base and then worrying about the new base in 30 years. Yes. <laughs> Look, yes. But some of the other models are updated a lot more frequently. That and the is bases true. seem to change more often. And I Well, that's it. All the Eldar range is basically changing over. So the new Guardians, the new Rangers, all the new Aspect Warriors they've released, the, the Reapers and the Banshees, the Corsairs, um, they're all on 28.5 mil bases instead of 25s. Mm-hmm. The new Warlocks are on 32s. The um, Phoenix Lords are on 40s. The Autarchs are on 32s. Um, I somewhat sort of, I suppose... I planned it well. I bought mm. 60 28.5 mil bases before the Eldar release. So I had them here so that I can start rebasing some of the units. I'm going to need a lot more if I try and rebase everything. I'm not yeah. going to rebase everything. Um, but at the same time, like I know people who are going, well, I'm just going to leave my Guardians on 25s. And I think that's fine as long as you're consistent. Yeah. Because as soon as you rock up to a tournament with one unit on 28s and one unit on 25s, it starts getting awkward. Mm. Um, so like I say, all of my modern aspect warriors are going on 28.5. So that's what they're coming with. My new Dire event or quote unquote new Dire Avengers, the ones that are from fourth edition that haven't been updated that are ready for paint. They've been tabbed onto 25 mil bases. They'll get cut off and they'll be put on 28s. Um, I rebased some rogue trader era ranges onto 28s as well, just because I wanted to use them. They were painted, put them on 28s, done and dusted. Um, so it's just something to think about if you are looking at it. I'm not updating all at once. I'll do it as I need to. Um, and there'll be stuff that just won't get changed. I can't be bothered. Um, and it doesn't get used frequently enough at tournaments for me to care and my opponents at home. And 
you know, our son, he's not going to care if there's three mil different in base. He might. No, he won't. Actually, um, he might. He might. Um, (laughs) All right, we're going to leave it there and we're going to come back after a half hour break. For you guys, it'll be 30 seconds, 10 seconds, whatever it is. Um, And then we'll talk about, what are we talking about? Iron Man 2022. Yeah, that's it. So Iron Man 2022 for Western Australia has come and gone again. Mm -hmm. Last year's event, we actually streamed. We were there out at the Kudar Tavern. You were there for most of it. I was just there for... The final game? Well, a bit of the fourth game and the final game, but yes. So this year it was run out of Beyond Odyssey and Balcatta, still run by the the guys from the Toy Soldier Cartel. Toy Soldier Cartel. And um, so Iron Man format is um, so it's Iron Man, so it's it's insane. It's five games in one day. Well, is it even in one day? <laughs> Technically, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, First game started at seven thirty in the morning, and the last one finished at nine thirty at night. They were two and a half hour rounds with depending on the round and what was going on at the time with some of the tech difficulties, between five and ten minute breaks. So I think we had half an hour for lunch. Yeah, and Mike was super impressed about having to get up at well, 5.30 in order to leave the house at six so he could get there in time. Yeah, because um, the game started at 7.30, so I wanted to make sure I was there by seven uh. to get myself all set up and all the rest of it and trolley and all and so on, so... Yeah, not happy. No, Mike's not a morning person. And after the third game, it was like, oh, Christ, there's two more. Mm. Yeah, I think like an Iron Man, I think you probably need to train for it and get some endurance and you didn't have any. Look, to be fair, my results say otherwise. Um, yes, but I live with you. <laughs> <laughs> and Look, I had to live with you the next day. I can't under undersell how much the mental fatigue impacts you going into the last couple of games. It yeah. is exhausting. And then it wasn't until the next morning, actually it was the middle of the night when I woke up and went, I need to get up, get a drink. Oh, I can't feel my feet. Uh, I'm probably going to need to take some Panadol for that. Mm. So it was a very long day. But that mental fatigue though, I think that that happens regardless of how many games there are in a day. So when we're running events, it doesn't matter how many games there are, that last game is always the killer. And that's if it events when you've got three, even when we do something where we've had five games over two days, that second day when it's only the second game for that day, and I guess I get that it's coming off the back of a full day as well, but that last game's always the one where everyone's like, oh God, I'm just so tired. <laughs> I totally get, I'm not making fun, like, yeah. Yeah, it was hard. Mm. Um well done to the guys for being the first people to use Best Coast pairings in a number of years for an event here in Western Australia. Mm. Um, Do we want to start with Best Coast pairings? I really struggle with Best Coast pairings. Um, and I have high hopes for it going forward, given the changes to the people who are behind the scenes working on it. And I'm already slowly seeing some of those changes implement. I will say that we, you know, we started with Best Coast pairings, what, how many years ago now? I think it was 2016 or, or 2017. Yeah, I think it might have been... We did it for 12 months, maybe. Mm. And at the time, we thought it was amazing because we'd come off pen well, it was and paper hand scoring, yeah. And then gone into Best Coast Pairings and then we were approached to look at Down Under Pairings and my initial response is, why would we? We've got something that's working. Why would we change just, you know? Um, 
and now we're huge converts for down under pairings and when you had to go back to using best coast pairings all i got was text throughout the day with swearing about i find a lot of the things really really frustrating with the software and I definitely got that <laughs> that impression. Well, I've, I think part of it's actually just to do with the fact that they want it to be an app. I don't know why they haven't like they they own down under pairings now. Mm. Why they don't just reskin down under pairings, change like copy and paste it over from that database into the other one, and just go here we go, it works. But we, because it does work. Yeah, we think it works because we've been using it for the last five years, and we think it's awesome. And it doesn't. I mean, it doesn't integrate with their app, which is I think the biggest problem. Yeah. Um. And the, the also app. the other thing is, so I'm really aware that we're a small, well, but there's people all over the world who have been using down under pairings. Yeah. But how does the number of people using down under pairings compare to the number of people that have used best coast pairings? Would they end up with that same knee jerk reaction of, oh my God, why are we changing to this? Best coast pairings was working. Why are we going to change to DUP? And I suppose it depends on what you want out of it. Um, well, we wanted functionality. My biggest concern is actually... Now that it's come out that if you want ITC ranking, mm. you have to use Best Coast Pairings. Yeah. And the only way to get official support from Games Workshop is to run ITC events. So part of the registration process for ITC means we can actually get prizes from Games Workshop in the form of free codes for codexes for army, army books to give away to participants hmm. and prize support. Yeah, But you have to be using BCP, have a registered ITC event and so on and so forth. As a player, I haven't built a tournament in BCP in a lot of ages. Years, yeah. I will be for War Calls because that's our first, our next competitive event in mm-hmm. May. Um, as a player, I found the whole process was really frustrating because I had to use the website to buy a ticket and it didn't immediately give me access. It mucked around for 24 hours. I couldn't upload an army list through the website, which is obviously mm-hmm. where my army list was. Yeah. And when you copied and pasted it in the app to try and get it over there, it took all the line breaks out. So you had to reformat it. Like you had to do it perfectly in a notepad, copy-paste, or it wouldn't copy-paste at all. Um, and then during the day, um, apparently when you create your, um, when you first like pay for the event, you're meant to set up a pin, mm. which is just for that event. No one at the event had a pin. So then the TO's towards the end of game one we're saying why aren't you putting scores in we're going we don't know what the pin is so they then had to manually go in and add pins for everyone and everyone's then, one two three four a lot of people <laughs> did just go one two three four and then when one of you opens the scorecard both players have to put your pin in mm. and in a world where you're trying to encourage people to not handle dice and tape measures and all the rest of it you have to hand your mobile phone that often goes up against your face to someone else so they put the pin in that feels so they can't do it on their own. Nope. Phone. Oh wow! So you have to hand. I knew your that you were frustrated that you had to both put the pin in, but I could actually see why you had to do that. Yeah, I didn't yeah. realize that your frustration on one was device. that you have to hand your phone over to someone and they have to do it. Yeah, it was on one device, which was I kind of went, "Why? Surely that's anyway." Yeah. Then you pick your secondaries, put all the scores, and that all works fine because it's it reminds me of DARP. Yeah. Drop downs and all the rest of it, and then you have to put your pin in again to confirm it all. And then your opponent has to put their pin in again, mm. which means handing your phone back. And I, f- like I say, I, f- I really do feel like that should be a case of I put my pin in, I put the scores in, I put my pin in again and confirm it. And then my opponent puts their pin in. 
it brings up the scorecard that I've entered, and then they put their pin in again to confirm it. Yeah. So that way you're not swapping devices. Um, that creates security. It creates, obviously, the health and safety side of things, which everyone's really worried about at the moment, where we're being told not to share dice and tape measures. Um, so I feel like there are definitely steps that Best Coast Parents can take to make the interaction better. Mm. And it's... I've actually reached out to the guys and asked them a bunch of questions from a TO's perspective because I had like um, buying tickets through the app. Obviously, they take a percentage of it. I wanted to know what that percentage was. Mm. Um, how quickly you get the funds? Um, are there reports that you can generate for your accountant at the end of the year in terms of your taxation and that sort of thing? Now, for mm. most players who run a single event a year, it's not a big deal. We run a business, lot. Yeah. And. At the moment, a lot of that functionality isn't there, which is obviously why with PayPal, I can extract a report at the end of the year, mm. hand it to my accountant, and that's that's it. And I imagine that the fees are going to be higher than what we pay with they PayPal. Are. Because they have to do the PayPal slash Stripe fees plus their commission for it as well. Yep. It is so. higher. It's nearly double. Mm. It's not double, but it's it's higher than I'm paying now Yeah. Um, in terms of what we pay to PayPal, mm. which is another concern. And look, we had been talking about, I know that we've gone off on a tangent, um, but we had been talking about whether or not we were going to move over to something like Humanitics w so that it did make that easier. And if, if it takes away some of the steps, like for instance, um, for First Blood, people have to go in, go to the website, buy the ticket, then they have to go into Down Under Pairings and register, and then they have to wait for you to check that on PayPal and then check yeah, that. Yeah, this is, this is all in one, which is yeah. good. So, you know, I can see that there's positives for that. At the same time, it's frustrating that we're not having a choice around that. Yeah. And it probably wouldn't bother us if it was functioning in the same way that Down Under Pairings functions. Yeah, and it, I don't know, it sounds like we're ragging on it quite heavily. I think part of it's obvious apprehension in changing the way we do things, but I, like I say, I've reached out to them and asked a number of questions. I'm getting feedback and I'm going back and forth with some of the concerns I have. Because I suspect there are very few people in the community outside of the stores that run like their little events every month that do what we do. Mm. So the questions that are being raised aren't necessarily common being questions. Raised, yeah. So we'll see. And I think that, you know, while I suppose I'm reflecting on your frustrations for the day as a player and sharing some of our frustrations as TOs, you weren't alone in those frustrations. No. So, I know that the guys had set up a backup plan in case Best Coast Pairings didn't want to play ball, um, because we had no like they had no idea how like we don't know how the pairings work. You don't you don't know. And that's one of the things. So you know when we run events, we can make it so that you have control over it. You so have complete customization and control. But we can also do it so that um, you know the people who are going into that final game are going to get first and second. Yep. That wasn't a possibility for this event. No, there's a whole, like I say, and that's sort of the functionality side of stuff that's missing. There's, I feel like there needs to be a lot more control given to TOs in order to bring this in line with a product that's going to be as useful to the wider community because not everyone runs the ITC style of event. Mm. And I know that Europe's resisted it for quite some time because they play slightly differently. They, they're playing 20 keeping most of the time. Um, some of them moved to Dup, particularly through Scotland and Ireland mm, and yep. whatnot. Um, I know that 
there's going to be a shift to BCP, which is also then going to need to be stress tested because there've been events in the past where they've had LVO and CanCon the same weekend and the whole thing's crashed. Well, that happened to us way back. And I know, like I said, it's going back six years, but we had events where we couldn't... 90 players and it just died. Well, it was 90 players that died because there was also an event running somewhere else in the world that was a big event. Yeah. And, and we're... You know, for America, some places of America, we're 20 hours behind. So we're 20 hours behind, which means our events are actually running at the same time for a big portion of that day. Yeah. It also means that any sort of tech support becomes really awkward as well, depending on when we have that issue. Mm. So and who's available for tech support? Like I say, I do still have a number of concerns attached to it, but we'll persevere. We'll give it a go in May, in May and see what we think. Mm. So, moving on to the event, five games, one day. I should have really gotten my notebook because I actually take a notebook that was given to me by one of the patrons, which has scorecards in it. Mm -hmm. And it actually, um, I fill it in so that I keep track of what secondaries I took, how many points we scored, which turns I scored them in. Um, all very useful data, which probably should have been brought inside to be put here. Hang on a sec. Well, nobody's going to know if you pause this and then go and collect that notebook. Well, I thought the bag was here. Hang on. bag's not here okay so why don't we just do the magic of editing and pause for like a second and a half while you run outside to the dungeon and get it magic <laughs> okay so you've got your notebook now yeah so um admittedly the scroll is a bit rough because um the one downside with this book and i still have to thank jordan for giving it to me is that the papers are semi-gloss ah. so a normal pen doesn't work on it <laughs> Your handwriting's hard to read at the best of times. That's not too bad. Well, no, I can read the scores. Did you write yourself notes on how different units went? No, but I remember the games. Okay. So, I even got the missions down, and I can see when I scored what. It turns out my army that I took as a late-game army, because I vastly, abundantly scored more in turns three, four, and five, that I didn't score in ones and twos, generally speaking. Mm -hmm. Okay, so quickly, run us through what was the army? Uh, it was a patrol and a vanguard of Craftwood Order. Mm -hmm. It was Baharath, a winged Autark with the fire saber, a unit of five sweeping hawks, two units of five warp spiders, two night spinners, uh, two units of ten void scarred corsairs. Three with a whole bunch of upgrades, three wraith guard, uh, wraith lords, sorry, with double shuriken cannons and glaives alongside double catapults. And I feel like, oh, there's a unit of five rangers in there to make the patrol legal. Still feel like I've forgotten something. Okay, well, perhaps you uh, can. No, I think that might be everything. All right. Um, <laughs> perhaps you can put in the show notes the actual, uh, the actual. Army I'll see list. if I can post it in there, yeah. So, prior to the event, obviously, this was the first time you played with it, the new Codex? I, well, I took it down with me to Bunbury the weekend prior and got one game in against Gary, who's one of the regulars down in Bunbury, um, which was the day lists were due. Mm. So, I got one game with it prior to lists being submitted. So, when you were submitting the lists, where did you think the strengths in the army would lie? <sighs> To be fair, I was actually looking at it from a scoring perspective rather than a damage perspective. And it 
it worked largely the way I hoped it would with one. The, the game I lost is where it highlighted that you can't always play like that. And basically the army relied on basically just being really, really irritating to engage. Oh, so just like you? Yep. Um, it bounced around the table. It was hard to catch characters. It was hard to catch units. And the things that you did get to engage were toughness eight, often with a two-up save because I gave them uh, Masters of Concealment for one of my Craftwood attributes. So the army in the early parts of the game was really mobile, was able to sort of put a lot of chip damage downrange. And then in the mid-game, when the Wraith Lords and Baharath and everyone got into combat, a lot of the time it was just able to overwhelm and roll through. Now, the interesting part about this is the only game I lost is the only game I went first. Mm. And I've had a lot of time to reflect on that game and taking nothing away from Craig or his army of custodes. I think I know what I did wrong. Okay. So, elaborate on that. Where did you, Where do you feel like you went wrong with that? I hesitated. What I was it's not what, like you. What I was able to do in all the other games was it. It's interesting because I always considered myself a very proactive and aggressive player. Mm-hmm. It turns out that I like to see what you're doing first. If I like, if I look at you as a player and go, "Oh, I'm not sure," or if it's a list I'm not familiar with, I'd rather you go first and then respond. Really, that yep. surprises me. That's not how I see you as a player at all. No, and yet... You're normally very decisive. You know what you're going to do. And so you're going to do it and you're going to do everything you can to control the board and control the way that your opponent's going to move. Didn't, and I didn't do that in that game and I lost it. And I feel like I hesitated in that because I went first and I went, oh, hang on, I'm going first. Shit, what do I do? Hmm. And instead of following through on what I would normally have done with the other games and what I did the other four times... I essentially gave up almost an entire turn of shooting and then made some really basic errors like not at least getting two for engage and that sort of thing where I essentially... I don't think I scored anything in that first turn. And by the time I actually got to grips and started scoring points, it was just too late. It was too far gone. So, whereas in all the other games I played, I knew what I was doing and just went, this is what I'm doing. Hmm. Um... So whether fatigue played a part, whether I just had a moment where I just, you know, well, I don't spaced know that out. You can blame fatigue because it was game three, wasn't it? It was. Maybe you were hungry. Look, yeah, lunch was lunch was meant to be at the end of the game too, and it didn't really happen. So, <laughs> who knows? Um, so I ended up playing. I was looking at the scores as well. It's really interesting. I played Grey Knights in round one. The mission was the scouring. I have more questions before okay, we'll we go get for to it. that. Uh, so. I'm not sure whether or not you may have answered this, but did you find... So, where did you feel or did you feel that the list that you had had any weaknesses? Absolutely. I really... So, prior prior to the event, did you... Had you reflected on it to think, hopefully I don't come up against X, Y or Z because I'm oh, no. lacking here? No. Like, my my reflection only occurred once we got to the tables and I started picking secondaries, which is where my biggest flaws in the list were mainly around that void scarred, the two void scarred units, which were 169 points each. Mm. It meant that I, because they were so heavily loaded with gear and powers and they needed to be on the table to be doing things instead of inside the wave serpents. That's right, I had two wave serpents. Um, <laughs> I knew there was something else. Glad I asked the question um, and we got there, yep. It meant that I couldn't pick to the last as a secondary because those two units were the two most expensive units, which meant that 
my opponent was going to kill them because they needed to be close to actually do anything and exposed and their toughness through with a 4 plus save. So what I should have done is strip those back to under 140 points. And it's in retrospect, it's really easy to do because everything else in the army was 140 or less. And if I could get it down to under 140, I could have taken one of the upgrades off the Wave Serpents to get them under 100, to down to 140. And once there's multiple things at 140, I get to pick. Mm. And all of a sudden, the two Night Spinners that sit at the back of the board using barrage weapons that never expose themselves and Baharath, who is almost impossible to catch, become my three to the lasts. And it's an easy 15 points every game. So I, what I think is interesting about this is that we've had multiple conversations on as part of the podcast and mm-hmm. also conversations with the two of us and conversations with our son around the importance of the prep work that you put into going into events and looking at what secondaries you're like. like before you look at the board, before you know what, well, you know what missions they're going to be, yeah. what secondaries can you eliminate straight away? Which I, I had all, I'd done all that. So I guess it's that one step further of going, well, if I'm looking at this, how is, how is this going to work with the army that I'm actually putting on the table? What, so it's just that extra step. Well, it was part of the conflict actually resulted as a fact of me knowingly going that direction, saying, you know what, I don't care about it to the last. I'll accept the fact I can't select it because I did that knowingly. I did actually look at it and go, oh, I can't take this because it just won't work. Mm. But in my head going, you know what, I don't get to pick it. I can in desperation, but it doesn't make any sense to. Mm. And the fact of the matter is that there were at least three games I could have picked it. It wouldn't mm. have changed. Obviously, I won all of those games as well, though, so it wouldn't have made any difference. Um, but it, in my head, and when I went through the secondaries, I went, oh, there's other choices here in the same category, or there are other choices in other categories that I can take, That meaning if I can't take that one, it's not at the end of the world. It just happens that there were at least two games I can think of where if I'd had that as an option, I would have taken it over mm. the other choices I had to make in the end. So... Um, one of the good parts about the army build, everyone made the same comment, which was, oh, well, you don't give up secondaries easy, do you? Because I only have two characters. I only gave up 10 points for bring it down. So there was only about 40 wounds for no prisoners. Like there wasn't, there wasn't an auto take, oh, I'm going to get 15 from this just by attacking your army. There was nothing there to give up. So that was really good. Um, at the same time, um, it had 13, 13 drops, I think it was. So grind was a problem in some cases because lots of toughness three one wound model units meant that trading units became really quite an issue, mm. which also meant that the Corsairs had to stay in their transports longer so as to not give up those points, which in turn meant there's more points wasted. So there was a combination of things with that Corsair to ta- with the Corsairs that... I just wanted to use my Rogue Trader Pirates from 1987. <laughs> and in retrospect, I would change the army up so that the Wave Serpents become Falcons, the Corsairs become Dire Avengers, and the points save lets me do other things and ultimately makes the army better at what it was already doing. Mm. Um, so let's talk about that. So you said that there were areas where there were weaknesses. Is that just around those secondaries? No, it also, again, I was highlighted in game two, uh, sorry, game three, which with the custodies. Now, game one... I, can, I never know to, whether to pronounce them custodes or custodies. 
and you pronounce them in both ways as well, that doesn't help me. Could you just <laughs> pick one and we'll both be consistent? Or you pick one and I'll do the other. <laughs> it doesn't help me when you flip-flop around. Fair enough. So, games one and five were both against Space Brains, albeit different flavours, Grey Knights mm. and Death Watch. Yep. Both armies were heavy infantry, and those are the sorts of armies that, generally speaking, Eldar love. Whether it's Drakari, whether it's Craftwell, whether it's Harlequins, they have always been marine killers. They do it exceptionally well, they do it efficiently, and those two games, I nearly maxed my score both games. Mm-hmm. The games that were closer were the durable lists that were Sisters and Death Guard. Both armies, this, the game was much closer. The, there was only sort of 12 to 15 points in both games. And though that that second game made me worried about game three going into the custodes because it showed that just relying on shuriken which in the modern game now is for the shuriken cannon which is what i'm referring to it's three shots strength six minus one ap and two damage but if you roll a six to wound it's negative three now a lot of armies either ignore ap neg one or neg two the death guard and the sisters in this case had that ability mm-hmm or they already have a 2 plus armor save and then have a storm shield and, co- and cover, which means they essentially have a 0 plus armor save. So even at neg 2 or neg 3, you're still in a position where they've got a 3 plus saving throw. And the game against the Custodes really highlighted the fact that you, if you're just playing the game to fish for 6s in the hopes of, oh, you failed to save, here's 2 damage, the reality is that you have to throw so much firepower down to even get one wound through that the efficiency just falls away. Mm. You spend so many points on them that to get those reliable hits where you're forcing them to go to the four-up invul, you just don't have enough. Mm-hmm. And so the Wave Serpent's a good example of that. They were 150 points. 150? Yes, 150. <laughs> with triple shuriken cannons. Now, for 160, I can go a Falcon, which keeps one Shuriken Cannon, but then swaps the other two for a Pulse Laser and a Star Cannon, both of which are AP Neg 3 to start, both of which are either Strength 7 or Strength 9. The Strength 7's 2 damage with 2 shots, the Strength 9's 2 shots at D3 plus 3 damage. Mm. And all of a sudden, the total number of shots drops drops by 2, but the damage spike is much higher. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when you've got a two... Sh- and, and it's something I said in the last edition with the last Codex with the Craft World. You should be trying to run as many pulse lasers as you can because they're probably the best gun in the book. And I ignored my own advice. <laughs> so what they do is give you that reliable damage spike where you've got to deal with a Dreadnought or you've got to deal with Custodes units on those sorts of things. And you go, okay, cool. With strands of fate, getting hits and wounds is easy. Mm-hmm. And every time they fail a four-up invulnerable, they lose a model. Mm. Minimum four damage. Take them off, take them off, take them off. And then when you stack that into things like the Bloody Rose Paragon suits I faced in game two or the Demon Prince in game four from the the Death Guard, you suddenly don't have units that laugh you off. They actually have to take you seriously because if if you get to draw a line with those guns, they lose models. And they don't lose them slowly, they lose them instantly. So game two really high, like game three, sorry, really highlighted that because I struggled all game to kill things. I only got to kill what he fed me essentially. And 
by the time I could actually get a couple of decisive moves to happen, when I cleared enough space to let me make those moves, it was already too late. So you said that you struggled with that because you weren't decisive in turn one. Yeah. Because you went first. And so you held back and basically wasted your first turn waiting for him to do something so that you could then react rather than being proactive. Yep. How would you have done that differently? What I so there was a the way the the board was deployed meant that I move I was actually really concerned about the bikes in that custodes army. They all have what are essentially las cannon missile launchers attached to them, so they get high damage spikes, good AP. They hit on twos, high strength, good range, and I was really concerned that if I lost more than one wraith lord in the opening salvo, then the bikes just run roughshod over me because I've got no way of stopping them. Mm. So the three Wraith Lords were deployed and, and then... And yet you lost anyway. So, you know, that hesitation didn't help you. No. Um, the three Wraith Lords, though, were deployed conservatively and then moved conservatively so that I knew he couldn't move and charge me turn one. Mm-hmm. But I also knew he couldn't move and shoot me turn one because of where I'd placed them. The problem was they have fly and I don't, mm-hmm. which meant that he was able to limit them so that when they came out turn two, I had no choice but to expose them mm. because he had positioned himself in such a way that I had to act. And if I just deployed them as far forward in right position, they could have just barreled forward, taken the brunt of the fire, which as it turns out, they actually absorb reasonably well and then sort of use them as a, um, a distraction card effects where you force them to be engaged and they're relatively 135 points each they're relatively cheap so that you can draw something else in and kill something of a higher value which is obviously those bike units mm. so that's which is what happened in the end the bikes actually came in I was able to corner them kill most of them with the Wraith Lords I traded the Wraith Lords for the first unit of bikes the second unit of bikes came in and I traded them for the Corsairs but by that stage the rest of the Custodes are still on objectives out of line of sight in cover and I've got no way of digging them out so I've got two questions. One of them I think you may have just answered some way. Um, in the past when you've run similar army lists, there's been issues with how do I handle armies that have got fly? Is that an issue that you had with this army? I, th- I think it's intrinsic to the Wraith Lords specifically because they didn't have fly. Mm. And that's not uncommon for those big monsters. Mm. Um, those big monsters are really good sort of linebacker units that you can either put up the front charge them at the enemy soaking hits and then they deal incredible damage before they die or you can use them as interceptors to kind of help clear units that hit you and I made the mistake of deploying them in the first way and then not using them that way Mm -hmm. and then trying to use them in the second way but having deployed them in the wrong spot so I should have made the call when I deployed them hey I'm going to let him come to me I'm going to use my warp spiders and my sweeping hawks and that to score points to force him into a position where he has to engage me and then I'm going to use my I'm going to trade my Corsairs with a unit of bikes let the Wraith Lords go in and kill the bikes and um, it was just a combination of errors that I was able to reflect on after the fact and just go well that's all my own doing Hmm. and then my other question is so you said that you basically you could only attack what he fed you yeah what would you have done differently that would have changed that? A part of it was to do with the mission and the way... Look, he's got a very, very good army. 
um, and he knows how to play it. Mm. And I can't take anything away from Craig for that. And that that's not my intention. No, I no. guess the the custodes army at the moment. Go through, we go through this type of stuff and go through. Okay, so what? Where were you expecting the weaknesses to be? How did that actually happen on the I day? Don't where were you expecting the strengths to be? How did that actually play out on the day? What performed better than you expected? What didn't perform as well as you expected? What changes would you make? Their conv- this is a conversation that we would normally yeah. have. We wouldn't normally do it recording it. So I guess the reason that I'm asking this is not to suggest that I'm taking anything away from Craig, who knows what he's doing. He's a strong yeah. player. He knows he knows how to move the models around the table. I'm just pushing you. No, no. Um, I think that that's partly to do with the fundamental flaw of the army in that it didn't have any means... I, I think I kind of underestimated just how difficult it would be to shift certain units out of cover that I couldn't see. Because as soon as one of those two-plus units is in the open, it goes down to shuriken fire every day of the week. There's just so much of it. Half of it's at neg three, so you're pushing them to invol saves. It's flat damage. It delivers enough firepower that when they're in the open, it's it's Okay the fact that he was able to keep them in cover out of line of sight meant I was limited in what I could engage them with. I couldn't really charge them because my monsters can't go through area to, like through the buildings, so I would have had to have gone around. It also would have relied on them surviving to get to go around. None of my characters could go one-on-one, which meant that normally where someone like Baharath is a really good tool for eliminating those backfield squads where he can jump over, shoot a couple, kill a couple, charge in, kill the rest, and then bail out... Mm. he was doing that and killing one model instead of the squad of three, just mm. by the nature of the custodies and their defensive profiles. Um, and the night spinners likewise were shooting at things where they had two plus armor in cover, often with a storm shield. And so they were on three up at worst, and then he'll pop transhuman on them. So I can only wound them on fours. And then I've got 2d6 shots that are hitting on threes. You're going, oh, cool. I get seven or eight shots. I hit on threes, So I get five or six hits. I wound on fours, so I get three wounds. You save on threes. I get one that goes through. Here's two damage. How many wounds has that model got? Three. Oh, great. I've spent 140 points and haven't killed a model. Mm. And I think it highlighted why custodies are so good in the current game is that when you do play an army like he had where it didn't necessarily have to interact with me to score points and it was difficult to D out then you you kind of have to have some method of doing that in the modern game. Mm. And because I hadn't really seen that on the table before, I mean, it's very rare that I get to play those sorts of games outside of an event. Mm. It left me a little bit, oh, hmm. And, you know, it's... I did get some good stuff happening, particularly with Mortal Wounds and... And particularly the killing the bikes in the early part of the game forced him to stay defensive the whole game. But by that stage, it didn't matter mm. because I just didn't have a... It was a hold two, hold three, hold more on top of everything else, Yeah, which also highlighted the second part of the issue I had with my army in that when I'd selected the Craftworld traits for it, what I should have selected, there's a one called Hunters of Ancient Relics and it basically lets you still perform actions and shoot. And... So when you're dropping Swooping Hawks or Warp Spiders down onto objectives, you then have to make the choice of, do I raise a banner or do I perform my action? Yeah. 
or do I shoot? Mm. And when you've got so few units and so few models, you can't be affording to be in a position where you have to make that call. The unit has to be expendable that you can just go, oh, well, I'm going to perform the action and lose them. Mm. But I couldn't do that. So a lot of the games that I've been playing since have included me changing the craft worlds to give me that ability so that when the Sweeping Hawks do redeploy, they have that ability to land on an objective, perform the action and still shoot and still engage in the game. Mm. Um, which I think is really important for craft world in particular. So. so going back, would you? what changes would you make to the army? So the two wave serpents, like I said, would become falcons. Mm-hmm. There's a 10-point deficit per tank. Mm-hmm. And the reality of that two-point deficit is I could just not take the shuriken cannons on the boats, leave them with the twin catapults, because the two main guns synergize better with the range, and they don't have to get as close. And that would be the same. That would be just a straight trade. The two units of Corsairs would either have to drop to squads of six to fit in those two two boats, which isn't terrible, because you could just run them with rifles and then the Psyker. And the mm-hmm. psychers were really handy for me for when I needed those mortal wounds yep. in a pinch. But I actually feel like taking them as Dire Avengers would probably just be more efficient because the Dire Avengers can get obsec. The Dire Avengers have better sh- better shooting and better shuriken. Um, they're a little bit more self-sufficient. And the point savings on the squad, like six Dire Avengers are they're 12 points a model. What's that, 72 points? Yep. The Corsairs... Uh, 12 points a model each, but the, the cast is 25. Mm. So you're saving 13 points from the squad straight away, plus the other four bodies that were in the squad at 12 points each, plus the special weapon, plus the heavy weapon. There's probably 100, 150 points in the mix there that suddenly becomes free. And what would you do with it? Um, part of me was tempted to go a third Falcon for fire support. I actually think it'd be better spent on... Something like either a pair of war walkers, maybe support weapons, D cannons potentially. Um, what would they have got you? So the D cannon in particular is a profile I really like. I'm trying to figure out how to put it into an army because it's only 24 inch range, but it's indirect fire, mm-hmm. and it's a great deterrent weapon. Um, it's in episode six of the review series that we're we've been publishing. Mm-hmm. If you go to YouTube, um, it's a 24. And while you're there, hit subscribe. It's a 24-inch range, D3 shots, strength 12, minus 4, D3, plus 3 damage, and on 6s to wound, it does a mortal wound as well. And you can take three of them in a battery. They're about 190 points for five. I have 65, 75 points a model. Mm -hmm. Um, So I should have been able to get a pair of them in that Mm -hmm. exchange. And what you can then do is use them in the backfield to sit on an objective, let the night spinners sort of advance and provide proper support Mm. anything that comes within 24 inches has to then contend with D cannons that they can't see they're hard to get to because you you can shield them with the night spinners they're out of line of sight and can you actually afford to let them shoot at you when the potential outcome is you know if you get six shots and six hits and with fate dice it's actually possible for you to go yeah you know what getting four or five hits out of these consistently is actually not hard. You're then sort of looking at it going, oh, strength 12, minus four, D3 plus three. Oh, I've just lost an entire squad of some of the heaviest infantry in the game. Yeah. 
and they can reach the midboard where the middle objectives are. Mm. So the fact they're also vehicles means you can move and shoot them without penalty, which I think is something that often will get overlooked. Um, they can't charge or advance and they don't have battle focus, but you can fire and fade them, which is another unique little trick where you can advance them forward to get them in range, shoot them and then bounce them back out of range. So there's lots of little things that I think they might actually bring to the table that are worth considering. Mm. Um, the other the other way you can go with those points is then looking at some sort of assault element to help dig out those heavily defended units in cover, but I'm just not convinced 150 points is enough for whatever you buy to actually achieve that result consistent, consistently. Yeah. So, you know, at that point, does it just go, okay, I'm going to take two squads of five Dire Avengers instead of six, save myself another 24 points and have enough points for another Phoenix Lord and give take a Sermon or take um, Karandras or even Fugan and use them as a bully unit like you would with the Wraith Lords, but let them move with the Wraith Lords to take some punishment and protect the Wraith Lords a little bit with things they can't handle and let a 150-point super character carve up whatever they meet in combat. It's not a terrible option, but it it's a lot of investment for a lot of risk. Mm. So, I don't know. It's I think the army at its core has the potential to beat Custodes, but... You played it wrong. I, part of it was playing it wrong, and part of it is the mission that we ended up playing, combined with the durability, combined with a little bit of my own, you know, poor planning was a, a perfect storm of elements. Do I think I win that game going back and playing it again? No. I actually think I might win that one in three or one in four times. And that's because the army at its core, it'll win, it'll beat most play, most things. But when it comes into that circumstance of the right mission with the right opponent, with the right army, it highlighted that there's a problem in engaging those sorts of formations. So, um, and with making the changes that you've just said, do you think that that puts you in a better place to be able to win against that uh, army? Yeah, it does. It gives me the ability to be more proactive with the tanks, to bring more forward firepower. It takes a bit of pressure off of the Wraith Lords because the Wraith Lords, you have to stop because they're coming to get you turn two. But you've also got heavy firepower from the tanks where you can't you can't afford to expose yourself to those tanks for too long. And I've got more units that I can afford to... I can drop a 60-point unit onto the table to let it sit on an objective for the rest of the game. It, that, that's okay. Mm. When it's 169 points, you can't afford to leave it sat on a backfield objective doing nothing for the game. So I think that sort of combination of things sort of leads the Eldar down a different path. And one of the ones I've been experimenting with when building lists is actually mass fast attack utilizing mass warp spiders, sweeping hawks, jet bikes, shining spears, all this mass mobility stuff in a craft world list that lets them perform actions and still shoot so that you can kind of be everywhere you need to be. Mm. But the same flaw, as I was writing those lists, the same flaw became apparent is that it lacked a lot of the early game punch that you really want in some of those engagements. Um, the avatars made an appearance back in a couple of those lists. Um, he's an interesting piece. Um, Baharath, I think, for any competitive Eldar army is just going to be a given. He's 
I, I'm almost expecting Games Workshop to make changes to his data sheet because he's too good for what he does. He doesn't have a huge output. But for those of you who aren't familiar with Baharath, um, again, you can check out episode one of the videos, the Aspects video. But basically, anytime he makes a battle-focused move or a consolidate in combat, he can instead redeploy anywhere on the battlefield. Mm-hmm. So he moves 16 inches and he has a range of 24 inches on his main weapon. So you can deploy him pretty much anywhere in your deployment zone, move him his 16 inches and shoot something. It doesn't really matter what. And then just redeploy more than nine inches away from the enemy models anywhere on the table. And then with Strands of Fate dice, if you've got a six for a charge move in your Strands of Fate pool, you then need to roll a three to make a successful charge with him. And he goes in, he fights... And you don't base to base whatever you charge. And then instead of consolidating, after you finish stabbing them, you just redeploy again. Yeah. And they have no opportunity to engage him whatsoever. The only time they get to fight Baharath is when you let them fight Baharath. Mm. And I can see them coming back and going, oh, we're going to let you do that once per turn now. Yeah. Rather than twice. Like, I can do it in your turn for crying out loud. Mm. Um, so there's a few of those sorts of things that... I think Baharath, until they get changed, is just going to be an auto-take for any competitive Craftworld army. I think the Autark is a piece that, now that they've given us the new data sheet and fixed him, um, is a piece you'll see a little bit more of. I really liked mine, even with just the winged loadout that was limited at the time. Um, you know, he he had a lot of damage output. He was quite like in any sort of base. He was kind of like Baharath in that regard where he could pick a backfield unit and just murder them. Mm. He was just way more squishy and he didn't have the redeploy shenanigans that Baharath had. The Swooping Hawks, I'll probably end up not taking their Exarch powers anymore because while they were good, that's not why you're taking them. Why you're taking them is a hugely mobile light infantry hunting objective scoring unit Mm -hmm. and i can take five of them for 90 points and get they're four shots each so there's 20 shots hitting on threes any sixes to hit auto wound and then you still get your strength four no ap the exarch if you take the power gains an extra wound can take a different gun which is only mildly better and the exarch powers that you get are only okay for the cost Mm. And I don't, I'm in two minds now going, do you just go, oh, you know what? I'll just take... If you get to the end of the build and you've got 15 points left over, sure, take a power. Yeah. Whereas I think the Warp Spider ones are consistently worth taking. And that's kind of a theme now through all the Aspect Warriors I've tried is there's some that you just go, oh, I'm going to take that power every time. Yeah. I got to try the Shining Spear X-Arch with a Paragon Blade and Heartseeker. Now... Heartseeker, when I read it, went, oh, it only affects the Exarch. Oh, that's a bit crap. And between 3rd edition and now, you've never, ever taken a Paragon Saber on your Shining Spear Exarch. You've always taken the Star Lance. It was just better. So when they released it with Paragon Saber, I went, oh, that's cute. Mm-hmm. You know? And then I read the rules and went, hang on a minute. That's more than cute. So it's it's only it's six attacks with an Exarch power. He hits on threes. He gets full rerolls to hit. Then he's only strength four. And it's minus four, one damage. And you kind of look at the profile and go, oh, that's a bit... Uh. But the Paragon Saber lets you re-roll all failed to wound rolls. And Heartseeker means any fives you roll automatically inflict, inflict mortal wounds. Mm. So you've got six attacks hitting on threes with full re-rolls. 
And then it doesn't matter if I'm winning on fives because all I'm fishing for is fives anyway. Mm -hmm. And I've got six dice fishing for fives. And then if I get four fives, you take four mortal wounds and you still take four saves at minus four, one damage, which means that, you know, I, I threw him at a Mauler Fiend against our son who had six wounds left and killed the Mauler Fiend. Yeah. And I went, oh, okay, this is, this is, this is a thing now. And there's now a Shining Spear Exarch sat here with me that has a Paragon Saber. I built it before I tried it, but I'm glad I built it. Mm. So I think the Eldar army, unlike the Harlequins, which I've seen on the table now, the Harlequins have a lot of ways of either dealing mass mortal wounds in combat, which negates a lot of the problems you have with Custodes up close, or they have things like the Prismatic Cannons on mass Void Weavers, which are that high volume, high strength, high AP, high damage profile that the Eldar are actually lacking in their mid-range weapon. So they kind of go, here's our light anti-infantry guns, and then here's our gigantic death death rays. Mm. And there's nothing in the mid-board range that's priced well to make you take it. Yeah. Um, except the Pulse Laser. And the Pulse Laser only shows up on two platforms, one of which is a plane. Mm. So... I'm I'm more and more thinking that a star cannon pulse laser um, fire prison, a falcon is actually where you need to go to get that sort of firepower. So let's go back. You went and picked up your um, your notebook. So, which I'm assuming the purpose of was to talk about the actual games. Yeah, not not too deeply. Okay. But to kind of let me save the references because a lot of the questions I got were around the secondary choices. Okay, so game one was against Grey Knights. Yep, so we played the Scouring Mission. This is all Nakman 2022 GT book. Um, my opponent ended up having four characters. So I ended up taking Assassinate, uh, Engage on all, all Fronts, and Raise Banners. Now... Can I take a step back again? Sure. I promise we will move forward. I, just, I know I keep taking steps back. Prior to going into the events, which of your secondaries had you eliminated? Uh, all the Warpcraft ones. Because I couldn't either complete them or I had psychers, which meant I couldn't take them. Mm-hmm. Um, there were a couple that was like things like the the um, kill the Titanic things. If I faced something that had enough Titanic, which I didn't think was likely, you know, there there were some of those that you kind of go, oh, do I? Don't I? Yeah. To the last had come out. Um, Why? Because the units that I had to pick from that were going to be my to the last units just weren't going to be efficient. Mm-hmm. Um, I also deliberately didn't take a Retrieve Nackman data, which is a really common, I'll just take that because it's, you know, it's an easy okay. one to score points. No, no, you can't say that. Why can't I say that? Because you can't just say, oh, that's just a one that people just take. Why do people take it regularly? Because it's easy to score. Why? So you have to be more than six inches away from the other board edge. And you do have to roll for it now. But basically, if you perform it in two table quarters, you get four points. Three table quarters, you get eight points. Four table quarters, you get 12 points. Mm-hmm. And normally, it's not hard to get eight points out of that. Now, I knew that with my army, scoring eight points with that every game would have just been almost an auto, like, easy to pass. Mm-hmm. To the point that I could probably have scored 12 out of that almost every game. Mm-hmm. I actually think it's a secondary that is, it's almost too easy and 
it forces you to sacrifice units to achieve something that isn't necessarily worth the exchange. So for me, trading a 100-point unit of Warp Spiders or 125-point unit of Warp Spiders to get... Uh, it's called Rod or Nod here. It's actually R-N-D, which just doesn't have the same ring. Um, to get those four points doesn't seem like a good exchange. So I deliberately... Like, I was going to take it if I needed to, but it was one that I always put to one side and went, if nothing else, this is my fallback. Mm -hmm. And as it turns out, I never took it. So I deliberately tried to look for things like assassinate, looking for character kills, because having a model like Baharath being able to jump in and kill characters, he does it really well for most average characters. Mm -hmm. um, engage on all fronts is one that Eldar tend to do naturally by spreading across the table and sort of pushing the table. So getting two or three points every turn out of that is generally speaking really easy to do. The third one was the question mark. And I took banners more often than not, raise the banners. Is that a surprise? <sighs> it's not one I've traditionally taken with twice the amount of units. But I actually found it really good for the way the army played out, particularly in the late game. I put a couple of banners up in the early part of the game, and then by turn four, I had four or even five banners up, and you know, all of a sudden you score ten points in your last two turns. So I feel with raised banners, you'll always score a few points with it, with win or lose. Mm. If you're winning, it just snowballs in the last couple of turns where you just score max points or close to max points. Mm. So, yeah, the scouring game one was hammer and anvil deployment. So it was like the long, a short board edge to short board edge. So you're playing down the length of the table. Mm -hmm. um, assassinate, engage, and banners were the three I ended up taking. And I got 12, so I got all four characters for assassinate. And I killed all of the characters in the first three turns. I got 13 for engage on all fronts. And I got 13 out of 15 for banners. Mm -hmm. 83 total. Because I maxed my primary... Uh, turn four, I think it was, and tabled him essentially at the bottom of turn four. Um, my opponent, I was able to hold back to just um, 38 points out of 90. Um, he did take Purifying Ritual, which was really good for him and scored him 12 points really comfortably. Um, Stranglehold was one he took, hoping to hold more objectives than me. And I think he just underestimated how easily I could push Grey Knight units off of objectives with my Eldar firepower. Mm. Um, the The first turn of that game really highlighted what can happen when shuriken weapons roll hot. Because uh, he deployed his Grey Knight Grandmaster and Nemesis Dread Knight right at the front. He moved it and three other Dread Knights really aggressively towards me. And I looked at them and went, okay, I'm going to kill one of them and I'm going to cripple another, and then I'm going to get charged. I might as well kill the character. It's three victory points for me if I kill it. It's at the front. It's the most dangerous in terms of ballistic skill and attacks and yada, yada, yada. And it's defensively, it's the same. Mm -hmm. And he said to me, no, I've got a once per game three up invulnerable and a once per game redeploy if I get targeted. I said, okay, fair enough. My first wave serpent with sh three shuriken cannons are shooting him. He said, no, I'm not using my three up invulnerable. I'm not redeploying, go for it. Cool. Nine shots, nine hits, eight wounds. And he's gone, oh, it's okay. I've got a four up invulnerable for the ones that are negative three, and I've got a three up armor safe for all the rest. And he failed five of the eight oh. saves and took 10 damage out of 13. And went, oh, damn. And I went, I've got a second wave serpent that's oh. shooting it. 
And he went, I'm redeploying. And yeah. he, ba- he bailed it out. It meant that the rest of my guns essentially crippled two Dread Knights. And I got to the end of my shooting phase and went, I didn't kill any. Hang on a minute, I've got two Night Spinners. I'm going to shoot at Dread Knights. No, wait. I'm going to shoot at the Grand Master who's wounded back in the backfield. I'm going to use my Threat Invulnerable. Yep, I assume that would be the case. I still killed him. Mm. And it meant the two heavily damaged Dread Knights were essentially a much lower threat to me. So that when they did actually get into combat, I actually weathered the attacks, returned, killed, and was able to snowball the game from there. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the time I got through the Dread Knights and the characters... That was really devastating, though. You know, to have... To be going, no, no, I reckon I'm okay. I've got all of these buffers here that, yep. you know... And then it literally comes down to the dice failed me. Look, I think... I think he was willing to accept the fact he was going to take two or four damage. Yeah, but ten. And then, whatever. I at one point he he was always going to redeploy. He knew he had that up the sleeve. Mm. The question was, at what? How much damage was he willing to accept? Because you have to do it when you're targeted, not yeah. after the fact. And so that damage spike really did hurt. Yeah. Um. Once those dread knights were gone, though. It just highlighted how well Eldar go into Space Marine profiles. Mm. There's lots of two damage, lots of minus two, minus three AP, you know, and you just kind of pick five man combat squads and just take them out with, you know, Night Spinner fires and kills a whole squad. Baharath shoots and charges, kills a whole squad. Um, and we were talking about the game after the fact, and he said to me, What could I have done differently? I said, Look, I think your plan was solid. Yeah. I think that. You were unlucky to lose the Grand Master. But at the same time, I think that you're in an awkward position with that model because of the rules he has. What I can do is go, cool, I'm going to shoot your Grand Master. Do you want to redeploy? No. Awesome. Do you want to pop your 3-up save? As soon as you say no to popping your 3-up save, <laughs> you get to do it every time I target yeah. you. But if you partway through the shooting phase then choose to activate it, it's wasted because yeah. everything prior to that, you have not used it. Yeah. And if you choose it to be used immediately, then cool, I shoot one thing at you and then all of my other guns just turn on a different mm-hmm. unit and I waste your threat and vulnerable. So in that scenario where he gave me all four of them to pick from, I had no bad choices there because yeah. I just needed to kill one and mostly kill a second. And if I could bring one down to its second or ideally its bottom bracket while taking another off the table, that was all I wanted to achieve. The Grandmaster could have hung around and done something and then I would have dealt with him in due course. Mm. It just happened that the damage spike worked in such a way that he was one of the two models that got taken off. He was the only model that got taken off in that first turn. But it was an important enough piece that it scored me three for my prime, for my secondary and removed a force multiplier out of the game because there were no more reroll ones and there were yeah. no more auras and that sort of stuff. So, um, but it just reminded me why power armor, space marines versus any sort of Eldari is just always bad for the space marine because of the way the, the Eldar weapons tend to work. Mm. Uh, game two was against Mitch and his, um, I think it was his third or fourth game with Sisters of Battle. Um, playing the Abandoned Sanctuaries mission. I ended up with the same three secondaries. Um, Why was that? So, engage, engage is like I said, a gimme for mm-hmm. most elder armies. Um, 
he had uh, he had four characters in the list. Mm-hmm. I my notes here say I only killed three, but maybe he only had three. I'd have to go back and Best Coast Pairings won't let me view the army lists, so he maybe only had three. Um, I scored the nine for that. I got nine for banners. It was actually a slow one for banners where I only had one banner in turns one, two, and three and then had three banners later in the game which ended up scoring me nine points in total. Um, And I only scored 28 for primary. I didn't actually score it. I scored two for turn four for primary when I probably should have scored eight or even 12. Mm. Um, So... You know, it was 58 to 54. It was a very close, close game. Um, the thing that Mitch made the biggest mistake was he forgot to do his action for retrieve Nekmandata. Uh. He didn't do it turn one. If he'd done it turn one, he ties the game. Yeah. He forgot to do it turn one, he did it turn two, and then he didn't try again for the rest of the game, so he scored zero for it. That one thing, when he did nothing else for turn one because of the way the table was set up, if he'd done retrieve data, then the game's a draw. Um... Because the scores are neck and neck all the way through. Yeah. Um, I think now, with the changes I'm suggesting to the, the existing army, it actually does a lot better into his because the first turn I killed the retributors that had jumped out to shoot at me, but I didn't really have any way of engaging the rhinos and the tanks that he put on the table at T7 other than fishing for fives and sixes. Mm. And it's sort of made me realise that when I play my Drakari, for example... I roll in with 20 plus anti-tank guns. Yeah. And I'm not fishing for anything. No. I'm saturating it with dark lances and blasters to the point where it doesn't matter if a third of them miss. There's just so many shots that some of them go through and his D6 damage or D3 plus 3 or whatever it is. And the Elder Army don't have that. Not in the same way. Not in the same prolific, sort of prolific scenario spread across all of these different units. Yeah. And that's the, the key part of the Drakari that I, I play. Um, and like I say, that kind of then led into the Custodies where I took the same three secondaries again. I didn't score any points for engaging all fronts until turn four. Mm. And I should have scored two in turn two, uh, two in turn one, two in turn two, two in turn three, three in turn four, three in turn five, and walked out of there with 12 points instead of six. I got seven points for banners, Losing a game and getting 7 out of 15 is yeah. probably about right. Um, I only got two character kills despite him having four characters because the Custodes characters are ridiculously Strong. tough to get rid of. Yeah. Um, and the two that I got was a Psyker with an Assassin run turn 5 for Baharath who finally had an opening chipping through these bodyguard units. Still, there was one 40mm base width space. Mm. And Baharath redeployed exactly the right gap straight through and killed the character. Um, and the other one was in turn two when he redeployed his character and one of my Wraith Lords just turned around and smacked it in their face with a, a glaive and killed it in one round of combat. Whereas the Bite Captain and Tranjan, Tranjan was never in any danger because I just looked at him and went, I've... <laughs> I quick, it quickly became apparent to me I was never going to get to Tranjan through all the bodyguard units plus mm. the cut and everything else. I just kind of went, ah, oh, that's fine. And the Bite Captain kept his distance and didn't commit because he knew that coming in close with Wraith Cannons and Wraith Lords, he wasn't going to win that exchange. So why I'm going to sit on back foot objectives and shoot with missiles. So it was all played correctly by Craig. We were playing Data Scry in that game. Um, you know, I only scored 22 out of 45 for primary as well. 
I didn't score. I didn't score the second half of primary until turn five, mm. and then I scored nothing in primary turn one, and then it was eight four 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 in turns two through five. Yeah. So it just highlighted the board control he had, and I just couldn't dig him out. Mm. Um, if I'd swapped banners for Nackman data. Instead of it being a seven-point banner, it might have been a twelve-point, probably def- well, it would have been definitely an eight-point um, Nackman data. It might have managed a twelve-point data, but when the scores Even so, when the scores are five points, it's not going to do much for 80, you. 80, 87 to forty-one. It's not a relevant conversation. Yeah. Um, his is another list like mine that doesn't give up those sort of secondaries easily. So assassinate with four characters was a logical choice. Yeah. And I thought if I can get nine out of twelve for that, I'd be pretty pretty happy. As I stood, he just with the bodyguard units, he just defended them really well. Yeah. Um, Jaden's death guard were game four, playing tide of conviction. Um. I got. We only played four turns for this one. We actually ran out of time. Oh. Um. The score was fifty nine to thirty one. So that's uh how you had two hours and fifteen minutes. Two and a half hours. Two and a half hours. Yep. And that was the only game you didn't finish? Uh, I think Mitch's only went to turn four as well. Oh, uh, yeah, that's right. You did say that. Um, oh, no, no. We've got we've got turn five here. Mm. So, yeah, it was Jaden's for turn four. Um, I ended up taking, instead of assassinate, I took grind. Um, meaning, essentially, I needed to kill more units of his than he killed of mine in the same battle round. So what made you think that that was a good idea? He had lots of poxwalker little units and yeah. lots of cheap kills for me that I kind of looked at and went, "I've got a pretty good I can I can kill these this. fast and I can limit the exposure." Yeah. Um, so on primary it was thirty to fourteen in my favour mm-hmm. with one turn to go. In uh, secondaries, we both took engage on all fronts. I scored twelve, he scored two, and that just came down to his push into my uh, into my sort of territories, he quickly realised that the things that he would normally be using to get those, I was just killing off in droves. Yeah. And he just didn't... He only scored at two points in turn four with it. I, he didn't score anything in turns one, two, and three. I got 11 points for banners. He got nine points for spread the sickness, which is the sort of the Death Guard specialist yeah. version. We both took grind them down. And we both got six points each. He did it to me in two turns. I did it to him in two turns. So um, that was an interesting exchange Mm. because it was all me in the early game and then not so much. And I think that's something that we have spoken about before as well, that when you do pick off units in the early part of the game it does make it trickier for you to kill more units because exactly. you've actually, you've decreased the amount of that you've got to be able to aim at. It was funny. There was actually one turn there where I scored it over him and it's because he didn't kill Baharath. Mm. And he's the one who came closest to killing Baharath. He had Baharath on one wound. And then I pulled Fate Dice out, survived, oh. and then went, okay, I'm getting out of dodge. <laughs> yes, yeah. See you later. I'm going to redeploy now. Um, Running and hiding is a completely... It's an Eldar thing to do. It's exactly what Eldar do. Um, No, again, Baharath was really pivotal in that game because he allowed me to tag vehicles and sort of on my right flank allowed me to roll down through the tanks and stop the firepower that was coming in. And he did it early enough that the game hadn't been decided. 
the con the flip side of that is the demon prince because i put so much pressure on the right flank came down my left flank and all the guns i had there were ap neg one and neg two and he ignored ap neg one and neg two yeah with a two-up armor safe and at that point i went okay i'm just gonna i'm not even gonna waste the time shooting at the demon prince mm. i'm gonna spread my units out in the back table quarters scoring engage on all fronts and force him to chase them down to get rid of them yeah because at least that way I'm keeping him occupied. Mm. And by the time the Demon Prince was actually towards the mid-board to put pressure on me, it was the bottom of turn four. Mm. And I thought, there's like... It's a bit late we, we play out game... F- we actually talked it out and had a conversation around what turn five looked like. And... I'd it was start- a conversation. <laughs> you weren't... At, like, the no, game no, the game had, had finished. finished. We just kind of... We talked through and went, what does this game look like at natural conclusion? Mm. The score is 28 points in my favour. We think it probably drops to something in the range of 12 to 15. And with a change in secondaries from engaged to something else for him, we can probably get that down to five or six points if nothing else changes. Yeah. So the game was really well balanced. And it was like Jaden, every time I play Jaden, this score gets closer and closer. And I don't like it. <laughs> um. Game five was Death and Zeal against one of the Horton clan here in WA. If you've ever played a 40k tournament, I guarantee you've played a Horton. Um, with his Death Watch. The fun part about Rob is the last time I played him, it was his Death Watch and my Harlequins. And it was the final game of a tournament run by the Toy Soldier Cartel. Mm. And he did not have a fun day against my pointy ears. He played the entire five games without playing anything other than Xenos. And Death Watch are the Xenos Hunters. So you'd think he'd have a good day. Mm-hmm. He had an okay day. Like it wasn't, um, he finished up uh, eighth with two losses and three wins. The first game and the last game. Um, His was the Death Watch Army of Renown. So it was all infantry into Eldar guns that like shooting at Space Marine infantry. Um, Again, I had uh, Engage in All Fronts, Assassinate and Banners. And I maxed all of them out. Mm-hmm. Um, only 12 for Assassin because he only had four characters. So I'm actually, this is the game I maxed out at 87 points. Um, he had bring it down because I actually gave up like 11 points in vehicles. Only scored three for that. He had Suffer Not the Alien to Live, which is their specialist one. He scored six points with. And he had Stranglehold, which to be fair to him, he scored nine points out of 15 for over the course of the game. I think I would struggle with choosing secondaries where the maximum number of points I could potentially score is less than the maximum number of points. Yeah, you do have to kind of make that choice and yeah. accept the fact that... You're not going to get 90. You, you potentially can't get 90. Yeah, I would um, struggle with that. It's one of the reasons why the data, like that caps at 12. Mm. It's easy to score, but you only get 12. Yeah. Um. It's the, like with this game, I had banners and I maxed it out turn four. And, you know, obviously would have scored even more for turn five and turn end of game. Um, so sometimes you have to, depending on what you're facing, sometimes you just you look at all the secondaries and go, cool. And look, I get it. Mm. I'm more likely to score, you know, if I take this one, yes, the maximum I can score is 12. Whereas if I take this one, I can score 15. But actually, I'm likely to score 12 on this one. And this one, although there's a maximum of 15, I'm likely to only get five on it. So it doesn't make sense to take it, even though it's a bigger pot. I'm going to get, you know, less in it. But I'm just, 
just thought I'd share that I would have a com- you know, some sort of internal conflict over that. <laughs> I think a lot of the secondaries, um, when you when you have to pick them, and obviously when you're building your army, that can play into how you build your, your force. Like I said, with um, to the last, it's a really good secondary. It's you have you pick your three most expensive units, and if they're alive at the end of the game, you get fifteen points, five for each of the three. If you build an army that can pick that, you're obviously giving yourself more choices. And depending on what you're playing, sometimes they will be able to get you and sometimes they won't. If you are able to pick the right units, then it's almost an auto-take for some missions because you just go, you're not getting this unless I give it to you. Mm. Um, But you've also got to be careful that whatever you pick it with obviously becomes a high-priority target and... You can use that to your advantage or it can be a disadvantage depending on how it gets used. I could have taken it and then just left the Wave Serpents with the two units of Corsairs tucked at the back of the table, but that's 600 points of 2,000 sat at the back of the table not doing anything and you just can't afford to do that. Yeah. So I think artillery, mobile artillery, um, you know, certain special characters are really good for it. Um, and a lot of the time... Like at the moment, I've been mucking around with the idea of the um, the sniper jet bikes, the Shroud Runners, which at first I wrote off. Then I built the models and really wrote them off. Then I've built the second half of the unit and gone, oh, I actually kind of like these now. Mm-hmm. Then I've looked at the rules again and gone, why did I write these off in the first place? And now I'm at the point going, if I take six of them, they're 210 points. So why did you write them off in the first place? Um it came back to the idea of needing AP and needing the firepower that the Elder Army doesn't really have in that mid-range of, of damage-dealing weapon. And they don't have that. They have scattered lasers and sniper rifles. But a standard jet bike, a Windrider jet bike, is 25 points with a scatter laser. In terms of its profile, the Windrunner picks up an extra wound and it picks up the sniper rifle. It picks up a scout move at the start of the game. It counts as infantry for cover and gets a bonus when it is in cover. And it's only 10 points more. That one extra wound would normally be five to eight points on a model like this, let alone all the other things you, you stack onto it. So the idea of taking six of them at 210 points is a big investment, but it's mm. 42 shots a turn at 36 inches with a two plus armor save, all of it hitting on twos. And for a two-the-last unit, it's movement 16, auto-advance 6. It's mass multi-wounds because there's six of them at three wounds each. And you're not putting them in harm's way. So I keep looking at them thinking, do I take two, two units of three at 105 points or do I take one unit of six for 210 and go, yes, it's one of my two-the-last units, but it's going to be relatively... like It's going to be minus one to hit most of the game. It's going to be two plus armor most of the game. And I can buff it further because it's got core. So there's other things I can do to yeah. it like fortune and protect and some of the other psychic powers that you can put into it's another stack, army. Yeah. All of a sudden, that unit becomes something that you look at and go, oh, Christ, I cannot be bothered. Some armies will kill it. Yeah. But in those games, you might not necessarily take to the last. It becomes a unit that oh, I'm fighting a big horde of like 100 poxwalkers awesome they're my to the last unit you are never catching them and i'm putting 42 shots down range every turn to kill those poxwalkers that's a 
a straight up fantastic mm. unit at that point. So I think there is actually a place for the scatter lasers in the right units. But scattering them through your army doesn't do the same thing that blasters and dark lances does for Drakari. Mm. Um, and if they could take dark, if they could take bright lances, I'd be <laughs> right in right there. there. We're doing that. We're yeah. six with bright lances. Um. So yeah, look, I finished third in the end. Um, just that one loss to the custodians in the middle of the field. Um, in terms of battle points, um, I was three seventy eight total. Um, I was only pipped by Mitch at 391, who finished 7th. Uh, and then, obviously, the final winner, um, which was Craig on 453. Um, which is quite nice that the only per- that the person who won is the only person who beat you. Yeah. Um, there was a little bit of um, uh, an oddity that happened for the second place, who also finished undefeated. We should have only had one undefeated at the end of five games. Yeah. It was uncovered, unfortunately, that one of the players had written an illegal list after game three. He wrote an un- an illegal list and submitted an illegal list, and that was discovered yes. after game three. It wasn't intentional. It was completely accidental. Um, I just thought I'd clarify it because yeah. it made it sound like he just altered it at the end no, of no, game no, three no, and no. changed it to an illegal he, list. He unfortunately had used yeah. the old points values, wasn't picked up. Mistakes it was happened. It was an accident. Yep. Um, so they zeroed out his first three games that he had actually won. And by the time that was uncovered, it meant that Callum, who finished second undefeated, his first round loss becomes a win. Mm. Um, And that makes it so hard. Not taking anything away from Callum. No, no, absolutely. Um, So, you know, Callum... Although Callum was playing Tower. So. Well, okay, right. In that case, I've got no <laughs> compunction about what I'm about to say. So, no, this is in no way a personal thing to Callum. But it is difficult when you've... When, like, put from a TO perspective, it becomes quite difficult because if you lose your first game, it means that you're going into... Oh, I'm trying to find a right way to put it. No, no, this, look, so games, games two and three tend to be... Because they're pair-down process means yeah. that you're in... So, this actually used... Swiss pairing from what I can tell. One played two, three played four, five played yeah. six, and so on. So losing game one, his score was 41 points. You can see that in Besco's pairings. Mm-hmm. Um, from what I gather, he was tabled by Shane's stum, uh, Crusher Stampede Tyranids. It means that his game two would have obviously been paired against someone else who had lost, who had who scored a roughly pointy points. 40, yeah. um, now, I don't know who he played because I can't see. Um, but it does mean that he ended up undefeated as well. So he didn't actually get an undefeated winner because by the time it was spotted, mm. there was no way of pairing him into the top pool who was still playing. Yeah. Um, whereas if he'd won game one, then obviously that changes all the other pairings as well. And, and that, it's this massive knock-on effect. That's exactly it. And that's where it gets it gets difficult because I, I, I'm trying really hard not to use the term submarine. <laughs> <So> <laughs> but we've heard people talk about that, haven't yeah. we? You know, when you do go into a, I guess, a further down the ladder, it, you're not necessarily playing against a higher strength of schedule. No, look, and I mean, it's a weird one because obviously, um, like if you if you look at game one in the event, for example, we had Lockie Rigg, who is one of the top players in WA, pair off with uh, Craig, game one. Mm. That's and hard. One of them was going to lose. Yeah, and they're... Two of the top players in and WA. And the reality is you'd expect those two guys to be playing in round four, round five. Yeah. 
and because of the random pairing, they got spat out for game one. And it meant that Lockie going down 77 to 81. Oh, that's really hard. I um, actually really like to talk to Lockie about that to find out how did that impact his his day? Well, because he, he he would be going into it expecting that he he should be a podium. Yeah, yeah. He can potentially take out the the event. event yeah. To know at the end of game one that you're not going to win it. So he went seventy seven for game one, and then ninety seven ninety seven for games two and three. In game four from memory, and it is only from memory, he lost a mirror match, Harlequins versus Harlequins, to uh, Nathan Bailey, and he lost at 75-55 in a mirror. So because it's Swiss, how does that... So we would normally... In this sort of event, you'd bracket it. So would it still be bracketed? So There, were enough, there are enough be... players for five brackets. Okay, I just want to double check that... I'm understanding what you're saying. So in our events, normally we would have winners playing winners. And then... So for this event, if I was setting it up, mm-hmm. at the end of game one, we would have two pools. Yes. <laughs> all of the winners in one pool and all the losers in the other pool. Yes. And then the top winner would play the bottom winner. Yes. And then the second top winner would play the second bottom winner yeah. and so on and so forth. Yes. That's how we would normally do yep. it. And, and then, then when you go into game two, then you would it's have the multiple pools. Who, yeah. And event, so you basically end up at the end. By the time you get to game five, you have one pool That's just with 32 hot. players, which is two players on four wins. Yeah. So that that way you do get a one two finish. Yeah. Um, or sorry, that's not true. You do get one definitive winner. Yes. And then, and we then you set can choose. Then you so can choose whether you, you have that one yeah. too. Because yeah. fini- going into the playing the grand final and finishing fourth kind of sucks. Yeah. Um, which no modern sport, if you're in the grand final, do you ever finish fourth after the fact? And we have had a. Co- I know we've had a conversation around this because, well, the person who's lost that final, they've for this event, for example, the person who lost that final has won four and lost one. There will be at least one other person in On that the same room record, yeah. who's got the same record. So why is it that that person who lost the grand final should get to come second? And it's because they the, made it undefeated to that final. To the final, yeah. And that's exactly right. Um, so whereas from what I can tell with this, it was random for, turn, for game one, which is fine. Mm-hmm. And then it just went, cool, one plays two, three plays four, five plays six, seven plays eight, and then... So with that, so what did Lockie get for his first game? 77. So and seven... a loss. So where does that put him? It puts him... So he goes on win-loss first, and then it goes to battle points. So, so there would have been a bunch to... of players on one win. It used to be with with Best Coast pairings, I think. I'm just dredging back through my memory. It was it all on battle be... points. It used to be if you won, you would get a thousand points. Yeah, they've gone rid of all that. Oh, thank okay. God. Well, yeah, okay. They haven't had that since seventh edition. It was probably when we were using well, it. Was, it was before that. <laughs> no, so this this basically goes: Did you win? Yes, no, and yeah. it's one point for a win, half for a draw, zero for a loss. It's exactly the same, really. But yep. And then battle points is your sort of count back. So okay. he would have been. The top, essentially the top loser would be my best descriptor of it. Because looking through the scores, I think he's got the highest loss score. There has score. to be a nicer way to put that than the best loser. The biggest loser? No. That's a TV show. Yes, I know. He he has the highest score that still resulted in a loss. <laughs> yeah, that's better. Um, So he would have gone into game two pairing... 
down because there were twenty. There are twenty eight registered, but I think only twenty six started. <clears throat> um, so he could have actually paired up because you would have ended up with thirteen in the top and thirteen in the bottom. So he could have potentially been the one who paired up into the winners bracket. Yeah. Um, without seeing all the data, it's hard mm. making guesses. But I do know that throughout the day, you were once all the scores were in, you were able to look at it and go, "Cool, if I'm placed fifth, I'm playing sixth. Yeah. If I'm placed twelfth, I'm playing eleventh. Yeah. You could make that. You could see it happening. So it was essentially that sort of Swiss process. Yeah. Um. So. Yeah. Once once you take scores out from someone for an illegal list, it does change the entire face of what was going on. Mm. Um. And the irony is, I don't think. I mean, obviously, we know that player didn't do it on purpose. He just picked up the wrong points book, yeah. which happens. It's fine. Um, the change to his list to make it legal ultimately doesn't necessarily change how the army plays on the table. He loses two models and it's fine. Yeah. Um, he did lose game four and then chose to not play game five, which you know I, I don't necessarily blame him. He had some other stuff going on as well. Um, it's a really long day. Yeah. So... You know, I could see the frustration after playing three games and then going, oh, I fucked it up. Are you kidding me? Language. I'm allowed three. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, you know you've, you've done that to yourself. I, I know I would be really angry at myself for doing it and I could completely, once you lose game four, you go, here, you know what? I'm done. Like, I could totally see where your mind would go for that. So I certainly don't hold it against him because um, it'd be really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd love to have seen a one-two finish again. Mm. Um, I don't know who Callum played because, like I say, I can't see who played who. Yeah. Um, who did Craig play in the final? Yeah. I think he played Nathan Bailey uh, because so Nathan's did. loss is game five and he's ranked fourth with his Harlequins. So I'm ninety percent uh, sure yeah. he played. Yeah, that makes sense. Craig. Yeah. So, and which is exactly what we were just saying. It does suck to go into that grand final or the final and then end up finishing fourth. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't, I'm not, I'm not entirely certain. I think you have to be a subscriber to actually be able to see all the data. Mm. Um, so, look, I had a really good day. I really enjoyed, I was exhausted. Yeah. All five of my games I enjoyed. All five of my opponents were nice. I was going to say except for, but no, I was only joking. <laughs> and so you were you were overly keen to play this event. Why was that? Because I hadn't played an event in a long time. So what you told me? It's I had a brand new codex. Okay, I was more thinking the whole twenty years since the first event uh, that you played in, and that would have been the icing on the cake, certainly. So the the history lesson from. From the old fart in the corner with the grey beard to the rest of you young He's whippersnappers. He's talking about him, not me, just in case anyone was wondering. <laughs> I'm not in a corner. <laughs> well, technically, you're in the corner and I'm not, but moving on. Um, so, in 2002, in March 2002, the first weekend of March was the long weekend we have here in Western Australia. And the very first 40k tournament that I attended in 2002 was the Outpost 6030 Skulls event with Green, Biltan, Elder. And ten, 20 years on, one week later, I would have loved it to have been the week before, mm. but one week to the day, 20 years later, I'm back at a tournament playing with Green and White Eldar 
playing that that first tournament was seven games over two days. Yeah. This was five games in one. So the the sort of the enduro component of it for day one was still there. And um, I dropped one game in that first event and won the event. Mm. It would have been nice to repeat that this time, but I can live with third. Um, and it's sort of a nice sort of sort of circular. I've seen twenty years of tournaments in in Perth, and I've seen the community. That first event, I think we might have had forty players, maybe. And it was like, oh, this is amazing! Yeah, like it's huge. And back then because we'd had no tournaments and you're talking 2002 so the internet forums are a thing but it's not prolific icq yeah basically um so the guys who were coming to tournaments were bringing what they played with with their mates they weren't playing tuned tournament lists and optimization and damage per point and all the other sort of analytics that take place 20 years on who ran that first event uh, Dave Capon was the TO for that from Outpost 6030. And my Biotan list at the time was the third edition Biotan list, which was all your Aspect Warriors, Canis Troops. But in my mind, that meant I took one of everything, which I would never do in a tournament these days. It's just not the way you play. But back then, you took one of everything. I had an Avatar, I had one Wave Serpent, one Falcon, one Farseer, one of this, one of that. And, you know, no one was more surprised than me when I won it because we had no concept of what, like we were doing soft scoring, we were doing paint scoring. So everyone was fully, and it wasn't base colours, it was fully painted. And, you know, that was, that was a big deal. Mm. And then a year later, when they ran it again, and I won it again, it was, oh, this is, this is awesome. And it was a different army that year, it was Dark Angels. And then in the tail end of 03, we had the first West Australian Grand Tournament run by Games Workshop, which I took the army that I took to Skulls, slightly modified with me and finished second. And that was 50 players over two days at the Perth Town Hall. And then in 04, we had Skulls in four, no, sorry, Skulls was third edition which I won and I stupidly made the mistake. That was at the Mount Hawthorne Town Hall. And that was the morning that we, were, you and I were living in the little dodgy apartment in Kelmscott. It was not an apartment. It was a dog box. It was a little it was dodgy. four-room dog box. Yeah. And you were up until like 1 or 2 a.m. painting the tracks of my Land Raiders in black. And those, then Those tracks were beautiful. I, I never bothered <laughs> touching them up. Um <laughs> And I went to that event with those Land Raiders tied together with my shoelaces so the glue could dry. And then I varnished them in the car park, finished the assembly in the car park. And I made the mistake at the start of that event of saying, if I win it this year, I'll run it next year. And I won it for the third year in a row. And then I took that army, slightly expanded to the second GT that we ever held, was ever held here in Perth by Games Workshop and won it. That even got TV coverage. I got on TV with my Grey Knights. That was pretty cool. Was it? Um, I remember it really? I, the last game I played was... Is that f- how we're defining cool? I'm going to define Are it as sure? cool. <laughs> <laughs> I played Brad Page in the final um, with his Dark Eldar. And it was funny because I look back on it now with that. And that was back with Armor Values. And all my land... I had three Land Raiders in that list. And 
it was sort of there's a, still an article on Bolter and Chainsword if you go and look up Way of the Water Warrior, and it was someone who wrote an article kind of following my progress with this army, talking about some of the thought processes that he had about using my army, and he made a comment going, "Oh, you know, you've got these armor fourteen vehicles that are immune to plasma," and I went, "Yeah, they are, because you can roll a d six and add it to strength seven, and you can't get fourteen; they're immune." Mm. And that at the time was, oh my god, like you've you've made my entire army I can't hurt you. And we got to the table and someone said to me, Oh, he's got dark lances, you gotta be really you gotta lose this, you got land raiders, he got dark lances. He's got seven dark lances. Oh, and I was at the time I kinda went, Oh that yeah, that's a bit, bit of a problem. And it wasn't until halfway through the game that I realised that seven dark lances that hit on threes and still need to roll a five to penetrate the armor of the land raider and only do one point of damage out of the four they have each, when you've only got seven of them, I'm actually okay. <laughs> you need 20 of them to make that really efficient. And I won the final. As soon as I realized that, it was it was kind of the dawn of that math hammer thought process of, oh, how many, like, yes, you can one-shot me, but the odds of you one-shotting me are like one in 144. The other 143 times, I don't care. And but as you saw with your first game, sometimes, sometimes it happens. The dice don't sometimes it you. happens. Yeah, it didn't for that particular game. But um, yeah, the tournament scene has changed a lot in twenty years. We've got more standardized terrain. We've got a very different way of approaching events now. We've got more than one event a year. That is true. We only, I think, we kind of at the peak in those early two thousands. We were lucky if we had two. Maybe three. I know that um, Grand Prix yeah. to Arms was run by the Gamers Guild. Oh, yeah. But that was a combo event that was one day of 40k, one day of Fantasy Battle, one day of like four different game systems each. Yeah. And the only way to win it was to play in everything. All of them, yeah. Which I just went, uh, no. But for me, Skulls was always... And I don't know whether GPDA in 2002 happened before or after Skulls. Skulls was the first weekend in March, so I don't know where the GPDA ran before it, but it was certainly the most sort of public 40k first event for mm. for the year. And if I'm wrong, fair enough, but um, it's certainly the first I'm aware of. So it was nice to be 20 years later playing in another gaming hall, 20 years on, you know, still playing with toy soldiers and still enjoying myself 20 years on. And that was quite nice for me to see as well. I think you've been quite uninspired. Yeah. And, I mean, it was quite nice but also really jacked me off because I remembered just how annoying it is to have you sitting down spending all your time painting because you've left it sort of a <laughs> week before the sodding event. To be fair, to the, the, the book time. came out a week before the sodding event. <laughs> You had it before that, I did. and you had the models. No, I didn't. I didn't have the models. I've only just got the Corsairs. I had to figure that out and improvise. Well, you had the what you were improvising with before, didn't you? Look, they did go into the paint stripper about four days before the event after I submitted the list. Yes, because you leave everything to the last minute, and then we don't see you for however long. Oh, no. Because you don't spread things out. Look... If I go to the next Beyond event down in Bunbury, there is going to be some painting involved. That's why I'm trying to get some spray paint on these shroud runners because of my theory. But there's only six bikes, so that's not too bad. Oh, and the Avatar. But I'll figure that one out. Any other points you'd like to I'm share? I'm sure about... that your eye roll is audible now. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. Um, 
any other points you'd like to share about the event before we wrap up this main part of this podcast? No, episode, I, look, I, th- this is? I think there's a lot of things that happened in the new Eldar Codex that now having played with on the table either confirmed my suspicions on the first read through or, you know, in that I've played with them, I can reassess the, like, like I said at the very start with the Sweeping Hawk Exarch powers, I feel like dropping those is just an easy save of 15 to 25 points unless I get to the end of the build and have it spare. Whereas the, the spider ones I'll keep. Um, the Exarch relics I took for that event, would I take them again? Probably not. Um, they Again, they sounded cool. They don't necessarily add anything to those small units. Whereas if you're taking Striking Scorpions or um, Shining Spears, you probably want to take those relics. So I think um, there's a lot of traps in the Eldar book that'll let you spend points or spend command points or both that you go, oh, that's really cool. Probably shouldn't do that. Um, it just you don't have the you don't have the points efficiency of Drakari mm. and you don't have the output of Drakari or the way you swap units with Dr- like the um, the biggest thing about 40k at the moment other than scoring points on objectives is actually the exchange of units mm. and what you're trading and how you're trading actually becomes really important because if you can get a trade of two to one or three to one that wins you the game you know better than anything else you can possibly hope for but when you're trading one for one you can't do that with Eldar you don't have the units so any you have to be trading up if you're going to trade a 120 point unit you have to make sure and one command point so in the case of like three shining spears paragon blade heart seeker and then the relic for the shining spear exarch whatever you charge has to be worth 200 plus unit points and be an effective tool on the table for your opponent you have to take something particular out with them you can't just afford to throw them at anything willy-nilly knowing that they'll kill it but at the same time you're swapping a 50 point unit of cultists for a 120 point unit and one command point for your shining spears yeah so the way the game exchanges now actually becomes really important that you are efficient in what you're doing i'll probably forget this by the time we record the next podcast episode but i'm just listening to what you're saying and reflecting on how much the game has actually changed not i mean it's certainly changed a lot in the last 20 years yeah well we've gone from third edition to ninth yes (laughs) but even in ninth edition how much it's changing and and i guess and you know the difference between eighth and ninth edition which is now well actually those secondaries you need to be paying attention to those yeah um if you didn't get it the latest white dwarf had cards which mm. you got as part of the White Dwarf. I bought two of them so that we've got two sets here so that when people come to play, we've got a set and we've obviously yeah. got one that I take to tournaments worth their weight in gold because you can put them in front of you and leave them there and go, these are my secondaries. What am I meant to be doing again? Mm. Yeah. But- and it's been really good for me teaching Lachlan because the last, the actual last game of my book is a game that he and I played mm. and I let him go through and pick his own secondaries and do all that sort of stuff and then... At the bottom of turn three, when I tabled him, we went back and I said to him, okay, so these were the secondaries you picked. Why did you pick this one? Because of this. Well, did you consider this? Oh, no, I hadn't. Why did you charge that into this? Oh, because I hoped this would happen. Okay. My experience says that was that was never the, the most probable outcome. 
So some of it's experience-based, some of it's being able to do maths on the fly, and some of it's understanding what you're looking at. And that all comes with experience. And he'll get better at it, and he is yeah. getting better at it. But that sort of being able to... And that's why I love this book, because it's got all my games that go back... When's the first game in it? Oh, there's no date on it. That's annoying. Oh, it's not like you to not date things, is it? Well, the second game in here um, is December of 2020. So the first game in here would have been probably... Well, I'm going to say November because we, I would have been given this at Masters hmm. that year or just before Masters that year. So it's got two years worth of games in it for me. Um, and being able to look back at what secondaries I picked... I keep most of the army lists saved in folders or in, in my phone. So you can actually go back and go, what did I do and how did that work and um, understand what's going on and see how you're progressing is, I think, really important. I was just thinking, I wonder whether it would be interesting or useful to do an episode on what are the current myths and legends about 40K. So you know how, we've, how many times have we heard, well, if you don't go first, then you lose the game. Mm. Um, and I think that now people are no longer believing that. I think it still happens in terms of people believing it, but I also think that it's funny how many times I see someone go, oh, the game's broken. I went first and I won every one of my games and this, 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 this. Have you got photos of the table you're playing on? Yeah, here's the photo. Oh, well, here we are. I just, I don't know whether it, or not- it is. It is definitely something that, I'm sure there are plenty more of those sorts yeah. of things happening. And I, I'm sure so what that... what are the other, the game's broken? I'm sure that they comments. are still happening. All of these things that are quote-unquote myths will still be happening in the community. I think a lot of them stem from... Um, other contributing factors. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly like the whole player place to terrain thing. I feel like part of the idea of player place terrain stems Could from... Can we just hold on a minute while I just have another audible eye roll? The thought of player place terrain... <laughs> I think that there are going to be members of the community who go with Player Place Terrain as an organiser simply because they don't want to go through the process that we did that took two years to do to update to a point where you go, I have consistent sets of terrain because I'd already invested all this money in it from however many years ago. Why should I have to do it again? And the hard part is that we know how long is it going to be before 10 feds out and we've got to do it all again. Potentially, yeah. It's fine because... Apparently, we're going to play a place for terrain. They can bring their own. <laughs> but yeah. I, or we could I, just do like a lucky dip. Look, I mean, you put like a, a one, put one meter. piece on. <laughs> just, just put a big one meter square tub in the middle of the room and yeah. have everyone fight over it to get the terrain they want. That's it, gladiator style. <laughs> <laughs> if you are still standing for the start of game one, you're playing on the top table, buddy. <laughs> but. Swiss pairings out. I, I totally get why, why TOs aren't necessarily going down that road because it is an expensive and lengthy process. I totally get it. We've done it. It is painful and it took us two years to do to get... Like, we've got 40 tables now that are consistent. Mm. Um, going bigger than that, it just... Yeah, I, I completely get why people would be reluctant to go down that road. But at the same time kind of alleviates some of those myths and legends by having something something resembling consistent even if it's not perfectly consistent something resembling some sort of consistency is important in, in my opinion anyway back to my actual question 
do you have any other points for the um, about the event that you wanted to touch on, or are we good? No, look, the terrain like a, the terrain was not player placed. It was placed by the TOs, but it was consistent line of sight blocking. You know, it was um, a lot of it was done by Amazing Forge and OTP, which is stuff that we've used or have used or do con- mm-hmm. continue to use. Um, so it all felt like an event that we would run. Um, Travis and Al and Courtney all did fantastic work on the day, making sure the event ran as it should. So thank you very much to them. Um, thanks to Beyond for hosting it. Like I had a good day. I really enjoyed being back and playing again. And it was really nice having a few guys, even people who'd stopped in who weren't playing, going, oh, it's really good to see you playing again, Mike. Like it's you know not very often we see you on that side of the table. So that was really nice. And it's also nice to see that, you know, the old dog still vaguely remembers what he's doing. I've got to wrap up. I shouldn't ask this question. What's it like being on that side of the table? I'm going to preface this with I struggle when I go into when I go into meetings or when I go into the room, I'm often the person who's standing at the front of the room. I'm often the person who's leading the discussion. I'm often the person who's running the workshop or, you know, whatever that is. It's really hard for me to sit down and be a participant because people are looking to me to be the expert in the room. And and that's hard because I want to go in and not have to be the expert in the room. I want to go in and just chill out and hang out and be a participant. But you can't because people see you in a particular role and they see you that way and so they expect you to behave in that way. And so they come to you knowing that you hold that role most often. How do you experience it going in being a player in an event when a fair fair portion of the events that are run in WA, you're on the other side of the TO table? Um, I look, I still get players interrupting games and going, hey, do you know how this works? Um, which is fine. I, depending on the, what I'm, what's going on at the table, I will say, I'll either answer it quickly or I'll say, oh, this is how I'd rule it, but you need to talk to the TO and try and get back to the game. I think there's a very good chance, um... I probably get less pushback from players when I ask for rules queries or when I answer a rules query in terms of if you're playing me and and you say, how does that work? I say, my army works like this. I suspect a lot of players just go, okay. Yeah. Because there are, in my head, I'm waiting for the natural response of, oh, can you show me that? Mm. Can you, you know, and I never get that. And Um, it's hard to know whether or not that's, is that because they expect you to know to know your codex inside out or would they push back anyway? I don't know. That's exactly right. And I don't know. We don't know that. Um, I also think it's kind of entertaining to me. It puts, a, it puts a grin on my face when someone says, oh, this does this. And I go, are you sure? Can you show me? Because that's not my understanding. And I'm being genuine about it. Yeah. And there's so many editions of the game rattling around in my head that sometimes you'll say something and I'll go that triggers a memory but I'm not quite sure which edition that memory is attached to it didn't quite work that way then can you show me that I'm not sure and then people get nervous and almost defensive even though they're right yeah because and um 
uh, it happened with Craig. Craig used the Tanglefoot strat, and I went to him, are you sure it's D6, Craig? Isn't it D3? He said, no, it's D6. I said, okay. I remember it being D3. Can you just double check for me, please? Because yeah. I know it was D3 at one point there, but can just for my own peace of mind, can you check for me? And he produced the book and said, no, no, it's definitely D6. And, he, and I went, no, that's cool. I don't need you to show me the book. I just, I'm trying to update my own knowledge and to make sure that it's not something I get caught out by again. And it's, I'm, it's partly flattering and partly, uh, like, I don't want to make you feel bad by asking. Yeah, and look, I can't Because people just assume that I know. Yeah, I can't remember who it was you were playing against, but you shared something where a similar kind of thing and you went, oh, do you mind if we just check that? And then the response was, oh, if I'm wrong, I'm really sorry. I didn't, yeah, you know, I wasn't yeah. trying to cheat. That was, you're like, well, no point did I suggest you were trying to cheat. I just, I'm remembering it differently. Can we just have a look? Um, but that kind of, that nervousness or that initial thing of, oh no, I'm not trying to juke yeah. you. And if you say it's, I'm going to use this example. If you say it's three, then we'll play it as three. No, look at the book. Yeah. What does the book say? <laughs> book says six, we'll play it as six. Absolutely. So. And that, uh, I'm I'm hoping that for the anyone I do get to play who isn't like a friend of mine, and let, mm. let's be fair, of the five people I played, I knew all five all of them five. well. Yeah. <laughs> Most of them on the ATC team and, you know, they're all all people that know me really well. But I would like to hope that if I can set that expectation of, hey, Mike, Mike still checks. Yeah. That it encourages other people to do the same thing and do it in the right way. Because so many people don't check. Yeah, so many people don't check. Just going back to the, the comment of, you know, oh, well, if it was my tournament, I'd rule it this way, but you should check, you need to check that with the TO. It's really hard. And because that then puts the TO in a difficult situation. Yeah. If they want to rule it a different way. Oh, well, Mike said he'd rule it this way. Well, bully for Mike. It's not his starting tournament. And that's why I always preface it by, if it was my tournament, this is what I would do. But I can't afford to give a black and white answer because then they just go away and go, well, that's the rule. So you have to preface it by that, which in turn means that you're encouraging them to speak to the organiser. And I am fortunate that, like when I went to Courtney with my course, my 1987 pirate models, I sent him photos of all and he went... What the feckin' hell is this? And I've explained it and he's gone, Are you are you serious right now? And I've gone, Yeah, they'll be on the right size bases. They're all consistent, they're all identifiable. I've got the right like I've got the psycho models lined up, I've got everything lined up. And he went, If you would allow it at one of your events, I will allow it at ours. And we are very fortunate that most of the forty KTOs in Perth are all on the same page in that yeah. regard where Something like that, where we are using Rogue Trader era models that I put on, like I bought extra 28 mil bases, I put them on the right side. Mm. Bases, I made sure that there was consistency in the weapons, I made sure that the characters were identifiable. Um, you know, that I didn't have to worry about. Whereas if I was taking those units to an event anywhere else in the country or the world, I'd be sending photos to TOs going is this going yeah. to be acceptable with yeah. no guarantee that they would say yes. Yeah. So when I answer that sort of question here in Perth, as a TO where I would go, I would rule it this way, I 99% would... of the time, it's something that has occurred at one of our events and we're all kind of on that same page. Just this is a conversation for off-air really, but I wonder whether or not it would be 
a different way. To, language is important, you know, how many times do I bang on about that? Um, but instead to say, I would interpret it this way. Or I understand it to be this, but you need to check that with your TO. I'm just wary of just saying, I read it as this, because I'm concerned that someone will take that as gospel. Yeah, no, no. Because of... I would interpret it this way. You need to check it with the TO. It's the second part of the sentence that I think most people would go, well, Mike said that, so that's fine. I don't know. My, my The part that I struggle with is the part of the sentence where it's, I'd rule it this way. You should check it with the TO. Anyway. Mm. Um, really, my thing was, how does it go being on the other side of the table and not being in control? I actually, like, I offered to help with terrain. I offered to help pack up. I offered... If they had any problems with down, like I was happy to help them set up down under pairings or West Coast pairings or any of that sort of stuff. Mm. I was happy to offer any of those thoughts and help. It's just part of the community. Um, on the day, I think I had a couple of rules conversations with Travis over different things where, and I, to be fair, I actually do this when I'm a TO as well. If there's a, a chaos is a particular blind spot for me in terms of the, the factions. I know what I'm looking at. Um, the intricacies of the army are lost to me because I just don't play them. So if I get an interaction with a chaos book and I can't immediately answer it based on the information I'm presented with, I will go and find Travis or I'll go and find Mitch or I'll go and find someone who I know has a better understanding of the knowledge and go, here is the scenario. What do you think before I give them my understanding because I don't want to taint their opinion or their thought process by what I've read? Yeah. And I'll get their information from them and then go away and work it out. Because taking taking someone else who is an expert in that part of the game that I'm not just makes sense to have someone that I can, you know, most of the rules interactions are pretty straightforward, but every now and again you get some weird thing like a soul burner cannon on a decimator stood beside a crimson crown of corn on a demon this with a... Demon Prince of this stood beside it that gives it this reroll, but this triggers this, and this explodes off this, and then this explodes off that, but you can't explode the second one off the first one because the second one's... All right, right we get it. And I'm Hurry left up. scratching my head going, what the hell is going on here? Mm. Okay, who's the jammy gets who play Chaos who like to leverage this crap? All right, how does this work again? Step me through this. This is how it works, Mike. Okay, cool. Um, so I like to hope that when I do get queries from... Like when Travis has come and asked me questions when I'm playing, he's treating it the same way where he's leveraging someone else in the room who has knowledge, knowledge that he doesn't necessarily have or wants to double check someone else who he respects in a similar capacity. Yeah. Because anytime I come and ask you a rule query at a tournament for an army that you play, it's because I trust what you're going to tell me. Yeah. And sometimes it's just to second guess myself and to make sure I'm covering all my bases. And sometimes it's, I actually can't figure this out. I need someone else to give me some opinion because I need to make a decision now. And I can spend the next three days looking for this and not come up with anything definitive. And we've got three and I've And I've got to decide it now. And I might go back away and find it different after the fact. Mm. But at the same time, I don't mind being that person in the room that people ask. As long as I get to play my game. <laughs> All right, this chair is really uncomfortable and we've been recording for a long time for this session. So let's hold it here and we'll come back to wrap up. <gasps> Adepticon previews. Yay! Oh, I've gone numb. <laughs> <laughs>
So in between recording the news and the topic, we've actually had the Adepticon previews take place. Mm-hmm. So as a short burst outro, we're going to quickly cover... What we normally cover in an intro. But it's not all of it. We're only talking about four of the videos. Um, and to take nothing away from the ones that we don't cover, which is Blood Bowl, Age of Sigma, and... We're not talking about Blood Bowl. The Norse team. I like the Norse team. The Norse team was very cool. With the beer boars. I love the beer boars. I know you love the beer boars, but I love the I love the fact you get one with a helmet and one without a helmet. That's so good. Um, Okay, I feel like we covered it now. (laughs) (laughs) I'm happy. (laughs) Um, I quickly wanted to talk about Necromunda, which is the new Ash Waste. Is just because you like the fleas or because you like the I love the giant flea. I think it's it's so cool that they've just gone, we're going to go full-blown alien. Let's give, like, we're not having horses, we're not having camels. We're not having something that resembles a horse or a camel. We're going a giant insect flea monster that we're going to try and strap a saddle to and ride. I think they're amazing miniatures. I really like them. I'm going to say it doesn't excite me as much as it excites you. Oh, I think it's so good. But the terrain. I do like the I terrain. I really love the terrain set. It is so cool. It's perfect for Necromunda. The set you get in the Ashwaste box looks amazing. Um, and I love the fact they're kind of raised off the ground. They sort of have domes that are mm. up on stilts um i think the whole set looks really really good and particularly painted in red with that yellow stripe the alternate color scheme i think looks really solid um right down to the fact they've actually put sand weathering around the bases yeah. of it and like there's been a lot of work put into this set it looks really good the set itself also comes with the flea riders you get a couple of the orlock quads um and then you get the ash waste nomads and the Orlock. We're not going to make it to the end of this episode without me having a tantrum if you don't stop scrolling up and down. It like wouldn't this. be an episode without you having a tantrum about scrolling. Break your darn finger. It is a standalone box. It isn't an expansion, so you don't need to buy the other Necromunda boxes or anything like that to play. You can just buy this if you haven't started Necromunda before. They mm-hmm. said that on the stream, uh, and all the existing Necromunda gangs will work in it. It's just that Always they're going to yeah. they're going to add sort of light vehicle or light cavalry combat mm-hmm. uh, with new sets of dice that come with the game as well. Moving on from Necromunda, mm-hmm. we're going to go to 40k. Um, we get the new Imperial Knights and Chaos Knights codexes announced with a trailer that takes a really sideways turn 30 seconds in from an Imperial pilot being slowly lowered in and everyone chanting and everyone, oh, he's going out to war to fight Chaos. And then we get him crucified on the outside of a Knight's shield, a Chaos Knight shield. That It turns dark pretty quick. Um, and we see the new Chaos Knights. So the War Dog, a.k.a. the Carnivore. There's a couple of alternate heads. Uh, it's a close combat variant, so it's got a claw in one hand and a big chainsaw in the other. And missiles on its shoulders. I'm not sold on the dog head for it. I was just thinking that. But the one they show in the video with the single eye and the tusks, yeah, I really like. I like that one. Yeah. Uh, and then the Big Knight is the Abominant. I like this one. So this is an extra sprue that's being added to the Chaos Knight, the Rampager set. So it's still got the reverse joint legs of the Rampager. It's basically a a new set of arms, a new head. Uh, It gets a tail Mm -hmm. and it gets new shoulder armor and accessories to go on the the sort of carapace. Um, The weapon is a Volkite Combustor, um, which is sort of a heresy era. Volkite sort of stems from the heresy stuff. Um, apparently this knight is psychic, so that's going to be interesting to see what that means. Um, and it Do has you want me to it has what psychic means, <laughs> and it has a electro scourge for an arm, so giant tentacle flaily things. 
Um, I love the fact that if you look at it closely, you can see that instead of having a mechanical face under the mask, it's actually got a giant skull mm. with one eye glowing and its mouth open and leering. So there's a lot of detail. I've seen a lot of people not buy the Chaos Knight kit because you don't get all the different weapon arms and all the other bits and pieces. So you need to buy an Imperial Knight to build a Chaos Knight mm. because the Rampage doesn't come with everything. This start still doesn't come with everything. So what I'm hoping this is, is the first step down towards not having, oh, it's a Imperial Gallant with a Chaos paint job that it's now a Chaos Knight. Like yeah. I'm really hoping this is a signifier that we're going to get a distinct force out of them. Um, or at least maybe a sprue that can be sold as an upgrade to those Imperial Knights to make them a bit more chaosy. Yeah. Um, but I really love this. Um, they're also doing an army box for it, bizarrely, which will be one Abominant and two of the new Carnivores, plus the army book, like the Black Templars release. Um, whereas the Imperial Knights just get a book. Oh. So, very keen to see these in the future. I'm sure that Lachlan's going to love seeing them. Um, and he's got money to burn at the moment, so... And he likes big stompy robots. Mm. <clears throat> kind of ticks all the boxes. Um, before we go to the finale of the videos, we're going to have a quick glimpse of the very dark future, which is the Cow Space Marine preview. Um, it was a 27-second 20 second trailer. They signed off, said goodbye, and then hit play on this video. And um, first of all, they confirmed two wounds on Cow Space Marines, which was funny. Our son is standing behind you, very excited about the two yep. wounds. <laughs> <laughs> um, they also previewed parts of other models. He's actually gone through it with a fine tooth comb. He thinks there's a shot here. I'll see if I can put it on the screen for you. Um, so they show a few different parts. Mm -hmm. They show a what is clearly a Cow Space Marine shoulder pad and helm, but you don't really kind of get an idea. I think it's a sword in the background with yeah. some flame. It's a bit hard to tell. Looks like a sword. You get a Chaos icon that sits on a backpack, the yep. eight-pointed Star of Chaos. Um, there is another shot, which is a shoulder pad with spikes. I actually think he's right. This is actually a Chaos cultist from behind. So I think what you're seeing in the background is a black domed helmet from the back and then the black cloth that sits across his shoulders and mm. then you've got the spiked shoulder and the strap that holds it all in place. So I actually think he's right that that might be a new Chaos cultist. Hmm. Um, and you obviously get a slightly better version as the Interesting, picture turns. I thought that was going to be a foot. Um, we then get a new wing, which I'm assuming is from the possessed, because those possessed He's models. He's laughing at me for thinking that was a foot. It could be a foot. It's like a clory foot, and then with the wing that came next, it made me think it was a foot. <laughs> we then get um another sort of burning head icony thing, which I'm gonna guess based on the scale is on a vehicle of some kind. Because um, it looks quite large. It does look quite large, but it's hard to say based on the scale because there's nothing there to actually no, exactly. give it scale. That is very true. Let's say there's no banana, but you won't know the reference for that. So, <laughs> <laughs> so the next shot, it took me a while to figure out what this is. Can you tell what that is? Hold on. Because I can. She's now looking intently at the large monitor. It looks like maybe it's like a forehead helmet thing. So what you're actually looking at is the back, of the blue part is the back of a Space Marine helmet with the cables coming out the back of the helmet and it's a hand holding the top of the helmet, a yeah. black Chaos Space Marine hand. I picked it as the, definitely picked it as the hand, but then that also looks like a knee that's next to that. It does look like well. a knee, which is about the right height for him 
in action. So I actually think that's a enemy head that's been torn off. Mm. Um, I'm just going to skip through in micro bites. We then get this cool eyeball, eyeball which we've decided is part of a backpack. Because the Chaos Space Marines tend to have the two arms that run off the backpack to the two vents. Um, it could be a backpack. It also could be an arm holding an eye in I, it. That looks like a claw holding an eye. Well, the, the, a lot of the Chaos Backpacks are that. There's arms that come out hold to hold skulls and that sort of thing. Um, it could be a part of the Possessed. Okay, so really we don't know. No, we're just taking... Well, we're trying to see how close <laughs> we are when the actual thing comes out. Um, we then get... What I can only assume is another cult thing that is dying as something else bursts from its chest. Because okay. I think in the background here is a head of some kind. So and some then, kind of demon type thing. Yeah. You can also tell it's a prototype because we're close enough on this screen yeah. that you can see the print lines of the prototyping. Yeah. Um, so it's this big sort of fleshy and bloody mess. And I think... Oh, no, it's still loading. I know that is the end of it. So yeah. there are some cool miniatures. And then it goes on to say, you know, after 10,000 years, you know, the Imperium can stop gloating. We're coming with two wounds. Yeah. Um, I thought that was really nice that, yeah, we're not giving you Chaos Space Marines now, but shut up. It's it's, coming. it's, ha it's happening. We're almost there. So Lachlan can stop complaining. Not that it's going to make too much difference for me with my Eldar because we like killing Space Marines. Mm. Don't we, Lachlan? Yeah. Mm. That's what I thought. Uh, and we're going to finish on the Horus Heresy. Um, we know now that the Horus Heresy has its own official logo. It's called Warhammer the Horus Heresy. It is coming in a box game version by the end of 2022. Um, the opening cinematic for it, in my opinion, is the best that Games Workshop have ever produced for any of their games, and I would argue it's probably better than most of the animations they do. Um, it's just over two minutes long, and it features Horus basically talking to his father, talking to the Emperor going... You lied to us. You did this. I didn't want to do this, but since you're not going to do it, I will. Type thing. He has a monologue, but he has a villain's monologue. Yeah. And we. I've get never. I know I've said this, but I've never understood a villain's monologue. Just kill them. You can afford to be the villain monologue when you are the War Master of Horus, and no one around you can stop you. Um, except the Titans, but he conveniently points an orbital lance strike at them and blows them up. Um, the whole sequ the whole thing is really good. The monologue's well recorded. I really love the trailer. It's fantastic. And they previewed two of the miniatures, which is the new Mark VI Plastic, a.k.a. the Beaky, and the new Sons of Horus Captain Praetor, sorry, is the official rank, um, which is shown in the cinematic. Yes. And I'm assuming that since we see him in the cinematic, we will also get the Imperial Fist with the lovely bushy beard and moustache mm. and that sort of thing. Um. What is actually coming in the box? They don't tell us. Don't There's been some really grainy photos of these released probably 18 months ago now. Um, so this has probably been a long time coming if those photos end up being in any way, shape or form true. Or they could have been early prototypes and yeah. who knows. But uh, you do get a good chance to see Horus in terms of scale in his Terminator armor. There's even a cinematic shot right at the tail end of it where you're looking at the space marine stood beside him and you're going, oh my God, they're... You know, maybe coming up to his sternum and he is towering over them. Yeah. So you finally get a good sense of scale for the Primarchs. I'm really looking forward to this set. Um, mainly because we can run heresy events with 40k terrain. 
So that makes it nice and easy to run stuff for it. And the plastic stuff will make it easier to enter. However, they have said that they're going to keep the 7th edition core rule set and just tweak it. Mm. And part of me thinks that makes sense for the current, you know, for the current fans. And part of me thinks it's... Um, Look, I think it's always going to be... It's always going to cause division. So what I, I guess what I have seen just today... So this was what... I, I watched it. Th- that aired around 11am this morning. I was going to say five hours ago, but I didn't realise quite how late it was. So let's say 10 hours ago. <laughs> yep. Um, and the response to it has been polar opposites. So we've got some people who are super excited because they're finally giving heresy some love and you know it's getting an update and all of that and then there's the people who are really unhappy because they're touching their game system yeah. and they're going to break it. Look, I think that there's also those people who've spent how many hundreds of thousands or maybe not hundreds of maybe thousands hundreds but of thousands, thousands of dollars on the black books that are now going to be all made obsolete. I haven't bought the last few of them. I really wish I have because I would have liked the set. But at the same time, they go for extreme amounts of money on eBay. And I'm not willing to spend that money on eBay to kind of round them out as much as I'd like to. Um, And the fact that they are going to go back to the start and go, yeah, we're going to give you loyal, loyal Legion lists and Trader Legion lists and all the other support forces again. And they are still telling you to buy the Primarchs from Forge World but most of the heresy stuff has been slowly been removed from yeah. Forge World. And now that they've got a proper branded Games Workshop logo that'll be on the Games Workshop main page, you have to assume that a lot of those kits that were Forge World are just going to go right. other than the Primarchs. So it feels to me like Forge World's going back to its roots where it's going to be specialist models... They're going to keep the Titans. You just can't do them in plastic. You might like. There's still the mythical plastic Thunderhawk and the mythical plastic Warhound. The reality is that the Reaver Titan, the Warbringer, the Warlord, all of the big stuff is just going to have to stay in resin. It's just not viable to go to plastic. I dread to think how much and how difficult that would be in plastic. And the Primark miniatures could go to plastic, but the reality is they're not going to have 40k rules. 40k is their biggest selling game. Mm how many people are actually buying those Primark models and how many would buy them if they're on the shelf in Games Workshop knowing they couldn't do anything with them without joining a game that the vast majority of the community seems to want to play at 3,000 points, not two. And that if they keep the points values roughly comparable to the existing game, a tactical squad of 20 Space Marines is only 200 points. Mm. And I think that's going to be the how they balance all that is going to be the key to the success of it for the wider community because it's all well and good going, yeah, this is awesome. And don't get me wrong, the trailer looks amazing and yeah. I love the setting. But if you if you think about a Space Marine army these days and a, a standard 40k army might be 40 or 50 miniatures at 2,000 points, if I need to have 90 or 100 Space Marines at 3,000 points, that's a bigger barrier. That's a considerably different hurdle to cross even with contrast paint yeah yes it is but when you've already got 2,000 points but they're not going to be compatible that's the problem Mm, yeah because the heresy weapons are different I mean yeah okay yeah you could use a heresy army in 40k but you couldn't go the other way potentially depending on the weapon payloads so I'd be really interested to see how it all plays out. 
the cinema cinematics look amazing the plastic models so far look amazing i'm really keen to see what they do i'm keen to see what they do and i can't i guess i can't try and put those thoughts into words at the moment well there were supposedly leaked photos of some of the rules um which a lot of it felt they were seventh edition the modified seventh edition rules so they mm. could very well have been true um yeah but there's so many well we've also so seen fake leaks out there at the moment well the imperial night leaks that came out a couple of days ago were just outright garbage like they yeah. were they were they there was a screenshot <laughs> Someone had taken a camera and photographed a monitor to get the data sheet. And when you actually zoomed in the photo, it, the data sheet was open in Photoshop. Mm. And you go, well, I don't really think that's got a lot of credibility if you've got it open in Photoshop. But um, then you looked at the rules and went, oh, I definitely know you don't have any credibility because this is clearly someone fanning, trying to get, like, this is what it should be type stuff. Yeah, and it's the same as, you know, what was it where Tao was all being canned? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so. so, yeah, if, we, if there's any more Adepticon previews, I don't think there are. I think that's them over and done with now because the next few days of Adepticon are the workshops and then into the tournaments over the Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Because mm. um, this happened Wednesday evening yeah. in America? Yeah. Yeah, that right. that, that, I think that's right. It is. <laughs> Thursday yeah. morning for us. Um, so Thursday is the kickoff for the, the rest of Adepticon. And then the tournaments obviously wrap up on Sunday because they run Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Yeah. So good luck to everyone who is over there and participating. If you happen to see Carl from Independent Characters, he's over there at the volunteer stand for the charities. Hmm. So go and say hi to Carl from Independent Characters. Um, go and see Hammerhead Games. They're out there as well. Um, I'm sure they're obviously the two closest that I can think of that we know and have spoken to in the past. Um, feel free to share photos if you are over there and you're listening to this yeah, on the Saturday. We'd love definitely. to see it. Um, and if you're playing, wish you all the best. If you're running tournaments, we yep. wish you all the best. <laughs> <laughs> may, what is it? May your drinks be as strong as the soul. No, may the soles of your shoes be as strong as your drinks. <laughs> <laughs> but in the meantime, we're going to wrap up the episode. Thank you for joining us. Oh, on- no, we're not. Because remember, no? way b- remember, can you remember way back to when we started this no. episode? Uh, we said that we were going to talk about the videos that we're putting out on YouTube. <sighs> um, no, um, but Okay. I'm sure that that was brought up. <laughs> so the unboxing video is live when you hear this, mm-hmm. um, which covers the Shining Spears and the Elder Avatar. So you can go and check those out. There's also comparison photos of the Avatar against all of his pri- previous editions of model and the Shining Spears against all the jet bikes I could lay my hands on at home, which is pretty much all of them. Most other, of them, yeah. Other than the Rogue Trader metal ones, which I do have, but I can't take off their flying stands because... 12-year-old Michael glued them and those aren't going anywhere. Um, So you can go and check out the scale shots and the comparison shots for those models. The short answer is the old Shining Spears will work fine. The Forge World Avatar will work fine. But go go and watch the videos. Yeah, watch the videos. Don't give them the answers. Um, We're also through part seven of the Eldar review series. We've just covered Guardians on Thursday. Um... And by the time you're viewing this, I'm hoping there's going to be one more. We'll see how that goes. 
um, once we've, I think we've got nine parts is what I worked out to be for the series. So if you want to go and check them out on the YouTube channel, part one is the Aspect Warriors, part two is the Corsairs, part three is the Inari, part four is the Psychers and Psychic Powers, part five is the Wraiths, part six is the Guardians, which includes the Autark and the Rangers, part seven is um, covering all the vehicles, part eight is the Army Rules and the Craft Worlds, and part nine is the Relic Stratagems and Traits, and that'll round out the Craft World section. Mm-hmm. We'll do the Harlequins probably in two or three videos rather than the nine-part yeah. extravaganza that this one has been for the Craft World. I think we had three down for Harlequins. Um, so the, all of those will be coming out over the next week or so. We also have a couple of new video series we're going to try and get regular uploads for. The first of which we have names, so I can call, like I can announce it, is called Target Sighted. So this is looking at a data sheet um, once a week that is either a new miniature or something that might be less familiar to players or just something cool that I found in a codex. It goes through the data sheet, it talks about some of the synergies, some of the unique stratagems, how you might use it on the table. Um, it's sort of a 10 to 15 minute video. The first episode covers the Avatar of Kane, and I think it releases Monday the 20... It's supposed to release Monday the 28th. It is scheduled for then. So be sure to check it out on Monday the 28th of March. Mm-hmm. The other two series we'll announce in due course on our Facebook page once we've finalised the names for them because we still can't decide. Although we got some... We've got some good got suggestions some good from our suggestions patrons. from the patrons. We've got some... Less good suggestions <laughs> from the patrons, which were, you know, good for a laugh, but not good for an actual title. No. Like, but I think one of the name suggestions was, was Freddy. Yeah. <laughs> but basically, um, they're three series that we want to get off the ground that kind of cover some of the event topics we hear a lot of. And they're just going to be short 10 to 15 minute videos that cover a specific thing. In the meantime, thank you very much for joining us on this three hour wander through the history of tournaments in Western Australia, my experience at the Iron Man, all the previews from Adepticon, all the previews that we've had before Adepticon. It's been a hell of an episode for 101. We're done though. Happy gaming, everyone. listening to the Objective Secured podcast. If you'd like to get in touch, you can visit our website, objectivesecured.com.au. You can find us on Facebook, Facebook forward slash Objective Secured, or you can email us, obsec at optusnet.com.au. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.